Hello and welcome back to Metastation for our podcast of episode 404, Eli Guarded. We are thrilled to be back after our um, very exciting earlier this week interview with uh, Jason Rothenberg, the showrunner of the show. And if you haven't listened to that yet, you should definitely go listen to it because it was a really cool conversation and I think really interesting. And we got all sorts of like neat information, including about some like deleted scenes from the first episode of the season, which is pretty awesome to find out. I'm Erin. I'm an English professor in Mississippi. I'm Claire. I'm a writer in Portland, Oregon. And uh, I think we're going to start out in Arcadia. Yay! Like the episode does. <laughs> like the episode does. <laughs> um, so my first thought on this this very action-packed cold open was that shot, like the very first shot of this episode of Jaha, like sort of lying serenely on his back was in the season trailer and in a hundred thousand years i would never have predicted that the the context for that sort of like weird zen monk moment he was having was like adrift in a lake with everyone laughing at him i was like this is a bold choice i love i know i loved that reveal that was that was awesome because it was definitely like I remember in the in our trailer podcast like I think that might have actually been the little clip that I made the any cult in a storm. I think it joke was about. yeah. I think because yeah, we're just like what the hell is he doing like lying on a slab of rock yeah. in the middle of nowhere <laughs> like it's such a weird jaha thing to do. So so we opened with that I was like ooh we're gonna find out what it is and then it you know we sort of pulled back to the prank and I was just like it was it was such a delightful reversal. I'm sure that was a, a deliberate, uh, you know, fake out, but it was it was very very satisfying. It really so. was. It was. I laughed so hard, and it was just also I really enjoyed both with that and then with the you know with the foam thing. Like there's 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 a lot of really sort of dark and emotionally messy stuff that happens in the Arcadia storyline, but the humor worked and it, and it provided such a, I think necessary and helpful counterweight, you know, like the what's been going on in Arcadia over the past couple episodes has been all about all these sort of really big, heavy, ugly, messy questions of life and survival and leadership choices and things like that. And so just like taking a second to sort of remember that, like, you know, all these people are like, 17 years old yeah <laughs> and like and in their own way it's sort of like even though it's very lighthearted, it was also sort of like you know i think everyone's been waiting a little bit for jaha to get some degree of comeuppance <laughs> oh yeah for sure and like and like ever i mean it was one of those moments where you know it's like a hilarious prank it was it's a little bit of like an aggressive kind of prank yeah because because jasper you know drugged him to get him out there and he admitted that, you know, so it's like a little bit like it crossed a little bit of a line, but like, I, but I'm, you know, I'm kind of cool with that. Like, because, because it's one of those things where it's like, if anybody has a right to get a little bit of long-term harmless revenge on Jaha, it's the delinquents, you know, it's like all these kids that he threw into the skybox and then he decided to like shoot them down at the planet, not knowing if they live as guinea pigs, you know, like a lot of them have parents who got floated by him. The sort of like, now you know how it feels to get floated. It's like, it's funny, but it's like, it's a really, it's like a really aggressive kind of funny, but it's, so it's like, it, it rides that line, I think really perfectly. Within the world, it makes sense. And then also, I think, like, for the audience, you know, like, 
I think a lot of us <laughs> sort of needed that catharsis with Jaha a little bit. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And it sort of scratched kind of a visceral itch. And the fact that Jaha took it pretty good naturedly, I think he was definitely like he was very annoyed. I think there was a tiny part of him that was maybe a little bit grudgingly impressed. It's sort of a subtle little reminder that he's not good with these people yet. You know, he's an engineer. Yeah. He's been helping. He's been working his ass off. He's paying his dues. But they haven't forgiven him. They're not obligated to have forgiven him this quickly. And so the fact that it was a prank for their own amusement and not, like, beating him up, I think is shows some degree of progress. But also, I think just that little sort of subtle reminder, like, you're actually not one of us again yet. We all still kind of have our eye on you. We haven't welcomed you back into the fold. Like, I think narratively, I think that little reminder was important, even though it happened in a funny way. So that we know that Jaha knows that he's still trying to make up lost ground with these people for whom he used to be like, he, you know, he was like he was the president. Like, he was the most important person on the arc. And then he fell so far and so hard away from any kind of position of respect or esteem with them after all the crazy shit that he did on the ground. And so I just think that that sort of subtle reminder that even though he behaves like a leader, even though he's been, you know, clearly, like, busting his ass on a lot of the sort of practical tasks that that need to happen for us to remember and to see him kind of remembering like, Oh, that's right. Like I'm still, you know, he's, he's still, I think sort of on probation, you know? So I think that like, yeah, that that was, I think that was an important reminder for everyone to have and for us to see him having, you know, it's interesting. I think to, to see how Jaha just kind of accepts that, you yeah, know, like, yeah. like, like, like not, not just sort of like, he's like, Oh, ha ha. Okay. Yeah. I get the joke. You know, he's sort of like, he, he's like, pretty good natured about it overall like a little exasperated but you know you can tell he like he like gets it but I think beyond that that's sort of indicative of and I think also like later in the episode we can talk about this more when we talk about Clark and Jaha is that I think he it kind of like is reflective of the fact that I think he really accepts that he's he is and will always be a little bit of an outsider I think Jaha feels like being the leader and having had to be the guy who made on who made unpopular decisions, who's had to be the bad guy, who's had to sort of like, you know, who's had to like float people's parents and put kids in the skybox and all that kind of stuff. He sort of accepts that that means that he will always be a little bit apart. And and so it doesn't strike me that Jaha's really going to try to get more integrated. You know, he's going to be try to be one of the people. I don't think he sees them. Like, he sees them, them as the people and he is... Jaha, you know, but I don't think he sees himself as one of the people. Even yeah. when he's not in charge, he's still kind of, you know, like you notice the way where, like, where he is. I think it's really interesting in a sort of subtle way so far this season if you watch where Jaha is relative to other people, what he's doing when large groups of people are sort of coming together, who he's interacting with. He, he's still sort of holding himself apart. He's always on the fringes, you know, like when he's working. When, you know, like when he came to, to Raven to work, he was like sorting scrap metal. He's all by himself. When he's working on the repairs in this episode, even later on when, you know, when Monty announces the list, he's kind of off. He's not working with anybody else. You know, he's not on a team. He's kind of off on the fringes on his own. He decides to come in and sort of intervene. So I think he's, you could still see how he's holding himself apart. I mean, that makes sense. You know, like this is something that, that, that Jaha has always done. And when he decided to go off, you know, on his own as this leader of with like a few people to go find the City of Light. He was still sort of like setting himself apart. He wasn't, 
you know, he was like leading those people, but he was, he wasn't one of those people, if that makes sense. So I think so. I think, I think you're right. I, and maybe it's not so much that he wants or needs any sense of sort of acceptance or belonging so much as it makes me sort of ask the question, is Jaha like, like the steps he's taking to maneuver himself back into a leadership position, like not necessarily that he wants to be respected or accepted by them to feel some sense of belonging or community, but he wants to be respected and accepted by them to get that status back. You know, there's, there's a part of me that feels like it could end up being a very sort of strange and interesting twist if by the end of this season he somehow ends up chancellor again you know like is that what he's gunning for he's working very hard at making himself indispensable both to clark who at this point everyone is sort of like she's the she's not the chancellor but she's the acknowledged leader you know and and so he's he's really putting in the effort to make sure that she perceives him as supportive and helpful and that he's using the skills that he has as politician that she doesn't have but i also think you know i think little things like him accepting his the prank with pretty good grace letting everyone sort of have their laugh at his expense you know even though like in you know like in hindsight like they they do all think they're leaving him out there in the middle of the lake for the black rain to come. <laughs> like, no one seems too worried about how to get him back. I mean, like, maybe maybe he rode himself back. I think he was, he there was a rope. Oh, he okay. was, like, tethered to the, to the shore, so he started just pulling himself in by the rope. But, I mean, like, if it had started, if, like, the black rain had come when he was out there, I don't think anybody would have been, like, running out there to help him. Exactly, yeah. Get, <laughs> he would have been like, yeah. you either make it or you don't, buddy. <laughs> So, like, there's a little, like, I think just because of that, it's, like, there's a little bit of a dark edge to this, to this prank, where it's, oh, like, yeah, yeah. he absolutely, like, he really could have died out there, and, you know, and the fact that they were kind of, like, okay, yeah, but it's funny, and he was sort of, like, to, the, he, that he wasn't gonna be, like, a grump about it. I think in the context of the little introduction that we got in the last episode to, to this cult stuff, to the Bill Cadigan stuff, to the fact that he sort of has this base of like secret chancellor knowledge that isn't written down anywhere else that the rest of the crew doesn't have. And then sort of what we see of, of him and Clark in this episode later, it just feels to me, I was just watching him being like, what's your game, Thelonious? <laughs> you know, like, what are you up to? You're suspiciously cheerful and like, friendly you know like I, this was the first time i think in in some ways where i saw him and clark relate to each other like he was her best friend's dad yeah you felt that dynamic here for kind of the first time in a way you know like the side of him that was in the chancellor the side of him that's like the dad that she and her dad watched soccer games with yeah, like the guy who was sort of like, you know, she spent a lot of time as a little kid in his compartment. Right. And he was like a, you know, a, a like second parent who made her snacks and yeah. tucked her in at sleepovers and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, like that Thelonious was sort of on display. for, and, and I had, and I was sort of conflicted about it because part of me was sort of like, do we feel like after everything that happened in season three that he has earned being this far along in this sort of redemption arc with the audience question a and question b is it because you know like like how much of it is him and how much of it is me that i just instinctively 
question whether his <laughs> motives are sincere, you know? <laughs> like, once again, you know, and after after being dragged to my fucking face by Jason Rothenberg for making fun of John <laughs> in the last podcast, um, which is just an iconic meta station moment. Um, but, I, but I did, like, I was... I found myself just like watching him both times I watched the episode with with real interest trying to figure out like what are you up to and where are you going next and I don't know like has he because if it is sincere it's like the really interesting thing about that like if he really genuinely was kind of like all right I'm in the middle of the lake but also as a human being I have to kind of acknowledge like all right, Jasper, that's pretty good. You know, that's a new color on Jaha, being sort of like graciously amused at something at his own expense instead of being like up on his high horse and like, well, I don't know. Is it because I feel like, and I couldn't, I couldn't cite a specific example off the top of my head, but I feel like there were a couple of times in season two when he was with Murphy, where oh, like Murphy Murphy sassed him and he was kind of like, ha ha, I love your sass, Murphy, you know, and then like, or John, I guess he calls him John. And then like, you know, let's keep marching through the desert. So I feel, I, I feel that's like that's true. something that we have seen. Like that, that part of him is there. Like, it's not always on display, but I think he has some, he has in the past displayed some sense of humor about himself. That's a good point. So, so I don't think it's entirely out of character. It's interesting because, you know, like until you, until you brought it up, it actually never occurred to me to think that what Jaha is doing might be any might be some kind of power play. I read it more as he can't turn off the part of himself that identifies himself as a leader of people. Yeah. And and so it's not so much that he's like playing some long political game to get power back. It's just like he like genuinely does not know how to stop being Chancellor Jaha and start being just like a regular person again. Even when he's trying to be a regular person and being like, I was an engineer, just put me to work. You know, he's still, I think his sort of like instinct is always to think of himself in those terms and think about how he would do things. And then, you know, he sees Clark making decisions or struggling with decisions or, you know, confronting problems. And, and he just kind of like automatically is like, I know how to solve this, you know, so he, right. he goes and does it. So I read it as a little bit more ingenuous you know like not it's not a calculating thing it's more just like he kind of can't stop himself and I don't know that the audience I mean I guess I didn't feel like we were supposed to to feel that he was redeemed yet I think like he's he's sort of chastened and he's changed and between last week you know with the um, bunker which was like it didn't work out but like he was trying to help and then this week with him stepping in and sort and saving Clark I mean, I think like this is these are the sort of like steps right, right, right. towards something like redemption. But it is complicated by the fact that like, you know, I don't know how much of him him stepping in with Clark there didn't really feel to me like he, he was he had anything like redemption in mind. He was just like, I know how to solve this. So he did, you know, or, or I, I think I could like he was like, I can step in here and intervene and turn this around 
And so he did it because he knew that he could. And I think he always just sort of like automatically feels that he has that authority. Like he never questioned that he would have, he like, Daha's never going to be the guy who's like, do I really have the authority to speak up here? He's right, like, right. he's just going to do it. I agree. I think everything that you're saying, I think that it is, I think he has the natural instincts of a politician honed by having yeah. done it for so long. The complicating factors, I guess the, the, the things that make me feel a little bit maybe more, maybe more gray about it are two things. So one, by being the person who proposes the lottery and the plan that ends up being successful and getting everybody motivated, he definitely wins over the crowd with that plan. Like he he comes off of that looking much better than Clark does. And B, That's true. That's he true. knows he's on the list by that point. They've heard yeah. the list. He knows yeah. he's on it. That's the factor that made me wonder... Because Kane is not on the list. Abby is, but Abby wasn't elected chancellor. I mean, well, I guess Kane wasn't either. <laughs> only Pike was elected. Only I Pike guess was the elected. Jaha Pike, was Pike the only Jaha. elected chancellor before that. Yeah, good work, Sky Crew. <laughs> but so presumably, Abby being on the list first, well, I mean, it makes my heart feel mom things. But also, because <laughs> because it's her, it's her first and then Jackson second. So she's not on the list as chancellor material. She's on the list because it's like we need every doctor. So I think part of why I feel like I was watching Jaha kind of using his persuasive crowd charisma, politician skills, he's using them to help Clark. And I do like, I do genuinely believe that he cares about Clark. And she... She did the right thing pragmatically. Like, she did her homework. She researched everything. Like, she looked at... I mean, she to a point where it was uncomfortably intrusive. She was looking at everyone's medical files. She was assessing young women based on fertility. Like, it's, it's really uncomfortable, but also... That is how you have to make a list like this. And I think that when he when he says, consider it shredded, but doesn't shred it, I think Jaha thinks, this is an excellent list. She did this right. She's being very pragmatic. This actually is the list that we need. He knows that he's on it as the most viable chancellor candidate. And so I just feel like on some level, is there a piece of him that is sort of beginning now to put the seeds in place to later raise his hand and say, I will step up as the elected leader of this people. And everybody will say, yes, Thelonious Jaha, we want you because you proved yourself. Uh, yeah, no, I, get, I hear what you're saying. And then I, I also had the thought when he took the list and said, consider it shredded, but kept it. You know, it occurred to me that if the whole, if the lottery thing ever does actually materialize, if it's not just another plan that winds up not actually happening when push comes to shove, if it happens, I could see a situation in which Jaha turns around and goes like, oh yeah, no, the, the lottery idea was just to motivate people. We shouldn't actually do that. We should... Yeah, like, keep the list, or at least keep most of the list, like, half of the, like, whatever. Like, we should, it should be, like... I absolutely felt like the lottery was a scam. And again, and maybe maybe this is just me sort of instinctively questioning his motives, but I definitely felt like he knows as well as she does that a lottery could be a very, very dangerous, stupid idea if your goal is long-term survival. And he doesn't say people need to have a say in their fate. He says people need to feel like they have a say in their fate. And those are two totally different things. So I feel like the part of him that's the really canny politician who knows these people who was the leader of these people trapped in another box in an enclosed environment. Like the way, the way that we saw season one Jaha and the leader that we know him to be, 
and the you know the strategic withholding of information that like that was his bag like that's who he was but Jaha isn't the kind of leader who would who would go for a lottery he's not that's like not a jaha plan so i don't think that they can actually just keep the entire list because they read the whole thing and people would know they and you would remember right. you rem- if your name was on the original list you're gonna remember that like people are not gonna forget so i feel like it it, it might it would have to be something where like they keep half the list and then put the other half into a lottery or something you know like some sort of like sort of work around yeah. to make it appear as though they actually did a lottery when they didn't but they really can't they really can't do a lottery and so yeah no i agree with you i definitely like instantly was like mm, seems suspicious they're very very savvy you know like yeah. in the moment let's solve this problem get people back to work and also make it turn it into a way to to coerce them to work even harder than they were before but it's basically like emotional manipulation exactly that was really how i read it he is smart enough to know that clark made what is very probably the right decision from a purely mercenary practical point of view she did the thing that somebody had to do and he also knows enough about you know like having been leader on the arc for so long that that doesn't play with the crowd and so he could sort of quietly say to her your list was pragmatic like you did the right thing like reassuring her making himself personally indispensable to her as a resource and source of support by reassuring her that she actually did her job right he was the only person who told her how they feel is how they feel and he did sort of gently correct her on what you were trying to say and what they heard are two different things and she needed to hear that you told him that they didn't matter and she did she's like well i didn't mean to and he's like well that's what i heard He's genuinely and authentically mentoring her and he genuinely and authentically cares about her and has known her since she was born. And those things are super real. And they're also complicated by the fact that he said that to her quietly away from everybody else. And what the crowd yeah. heard was Jaha rejecting the list. Yeah, so he's, yeah, yeah. He's That's already true. kind of playing the game both ways. He's playing one side to her and being like, I have your back. I trust you. You did the right thing. It was a good list. I'm putting it back in your hands, implying let's hang on to it. And then to everyone else, he's like, okay, democracy, a lottery, freedom of choice. Who wants to help me? Let's get back to work. Come on, team. Let's go. And they're all like, yeah, Jaha. You know, so it's just, so it's already like he's playing both sides of the game in with like impeccable skill and i and i do think that some of it is he just like you said like he this was his job he can't take it off but i also feel like when we end up at the point where a decision has to be made about who actually like who actually in real terms is inside that shelter and like who the actual 100 names are I'm going to be really interested in, I guess, where he lands on that. But he's definitely, what he has for sure done is either way, whether it's a lottery based on, you know, on who works the hardest, a lottery which, you know, a person will have to, like, perform that, um, or whether it's sort of the cold and calculating list. Like, I think either way, he's assured himself a position in that hundred. He has locked in his own slot, and that's interesting to me because to me it's like there's there's no way to separate his own self-interest from that, no matter how altruistic his other motivations were. And, and there really are, I think, a dozen different things going on, and some of them are selfish and some of them are not, and some of them are conscious, some of them are unconscious. Like it's just yeah. a very 
his motives are really complex and opaque, but there is at least that one one clear thread of it is like you come away with this knowing Jaha, whatever was coming out of the city of light and and he had ruined their lives. He would never have had a slot in. Oh, like, yeah, if they had no. known that immediately and picked immediately, no one would have picked Jaha. They would have been like, they'd be like, go like wander <laughs> around and die from the radiation. We fucking hate you. You've ruined everything. And now yeah, yeah, he's like number three or four. And that was deliberate. Like he he he's been working towards that. So I just anyway, so yeah, I'm just I'm very once again, I'm just, I'm fascinated by my own fascination. <clears throat> the other tricky thing about Jaha, like, the one I, I think one of the reasons why it is really difficult to read his motivations is because I think Jaha is a character who has always been kind of, one of his, like, main characteristics is his ability to sort of, like, look away from and blind himself from his less altruistic, less you know, benevolent or good motivations. Uh, you know, like, this is why he was so enthusiastic about the City of Light, you know, about Ali to begin with, is because he's, he, like, the way that he operates, the way that he deals with bad things that have happened to the in the past, you know, like, things that he's done that are wrong or things that have happened to him, is that he wants to sort of, like, forget them, stop looking at them, you know, move move past look forward so he was like always really really like happy to forget wells you know he's like happy to forget this bad stuff and he even saw it last week where he had the talk with bellamy you know he told bellamy you know you have to forgive yourself and move forward basically and it's not that he's wrong but i just think it's interesting for like jaha how like how almost terrifyingly good he is at doing that for himself it makes reading his or trying to suss out his his true motivations even harder because i think like probably jaha you know, the way that he operates, you know, whatever those like those those less pure motivations might be for intervening in that moment. Like, I don't think that he's able to psychologically look at them. He's thoroughly convinced of the virtue of his own decision making in the moment. And then when he subsequently realizes that was wrong, he then, you know, he re-rationalizes the mistake and then like moves forward from it. So he's kind of like he's like slippery because he never actually like dwells in a mistake so he's, he's like kind of the opposite of bellamy in that way <laughs> or even kane yeah yeah it really is like we talked about where you can sort of see the seeds in season one when you're going back and rewatching those um like see the seeds in those first couple episodes of the of the jaha that he becomes in seasons two and season three where it's like he is forever dodging complicity for the things that he's done and and so i, I think that's I think that's part of why it feels sort of narratively jarring, but also simultaneously completely in character that he already four episodes into the season after all of like the carnage and destruction of the city <laughs> of light is already kind of like, you know, yeah, I'm on your team. And it's like, yeah, you're on our team. It's like, of course he's somehow found a way to slither out of this again. <laughs> um, yeah. I think this is also is really interesting because this was, you know, there there's not very much Bellamy in this episode. He's kind of like he's in the he's in sort of the two different places. Well, he's actually, I mean, he's only in one place. He's only in Polis, but I think his absence it really shapes the Arcadia storyline in some interesting ways, even though we only get that one little sort of establishing comment from Clark where she's standing at the gate looking out and kind of like worrying about the fact that that Bellamy and the hunting party haven't come back yet. But I think, like, that scene with Jaha, if you think about, like, the kind of co-leader partnership that Bellamy and Clark have, what Clark needed in that moment, you know, like, Clark needed to, to, 
to connect with the people, to inspire them, to motivate them. You know, she needed to give a motivational speech. And and Clark has never been that kind of leader. She can stand there and tell them, like, what she does is she has that, like, long-term plan. She has an idea for, like, the long game we have this problem. Here's the solution. I have to make a decision about what people to put on that list. She can she can tell them what her plan is, you know, and she can explain her motivations. But she's not very good. She's never been that good, going back to season one, at really in large groups. You know, she's better at this one-on-one in large groups kind of like identifying how to appeal emotionally or explain, you know, to people in a way that emotionally connects those kinds of things. And the person who has, who you know, who has done that for her is Bellamy. Traditionally, when they're together, like, she's the long-range planner. He's the he's the one who kind of, like, connects and can motivate. Um, I think Jason said at one point something like, Clark inspires Bellamy and Bellamy inspires the masses or something like that. So, so they, they, you know, that's one of those ways where they kind of, like, balance each other out as leaders. And you can see this week, I mean, I think this is another sort of, like, pattern in season four and, and sort of going back, but we see it here, like, when, when Bellamy and Clark are together, they sort of, like, things t- tend to go better. Now Bellamy's not here and Clark is floundering again. And she doesn't, and, and, you know, in addition to not having the person who can kind of, like, communicate more effectively um, for her, she also doesn't have that person that she can turn to who will understand her. You know, she doesn't have a kind of, like, she's surrounded by people who are, like, who are angry at her decision and who don't understand her decision. And like, again, yeah. usually Bellamy is the person who like understands, like he was with her when he made the list. He was in the room, you know, like he's the one who she can turn to for emotional support. And so it's interesting to me that with Bellamy gone, you know, with those two issues, those two sort of like things missing that Clark needed, the person who steps into that role is Jaha. Um, and it's interesting to see how that dynamic, you know, like what happens when Jaha steps into that role versus when Bellamy, because like if Bellamy had made that speech, you know, if Bellamy had been there and stood up and made that speech to turn the crowd around, like, I think all of that sort of like, and then on the DL, he sort of set himself up, Jaha set himself up to make himself look good. Like, you know, that Bellamy would have done, wouldn't have done that version of the speech. Well, and, and the thing, the point that Bellamy would have made that Jaha didn't make because he didn't have that information is that Clark didn't put Clark on the list. So the 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 thing that I think the key piece of context and and Clark has never been the kind of person who would say this about herself. Like she doesn't she doesn't sit out there and like defend herself in that way. Like she didn't she didn't defend putting her own name on the list because she felt so conflicted about it and she clearly still does. But what Bellamy would have said is I put Clark on the list. This is why she's the leader. She's the person making the hard decisions, doing what like none of the rest of you fuckers can. Like look how hard she's busting her ass. Be mad if you want to be mad, but if you're mad that Clark's on the list, be mad at me. And partly because Jaha doesn't know that and partly because Jaha's point was not to justify the making of the list as a good decision. His point was to, like, his goal was to get everybody back to work, you know, and 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 also to be the person who got everybody back to work, which is which is a separate thing. But yeah, so I and and I kept wondering a little bit. There there were some interesting shades of both in this scene and then in in some of the Octavia stuff, we got little teeny tiny kind of flashes of Pike. And I wondered a little bit, are we meant to kind of parallel, you know, like when, when Bellamy and Clark are separated for too long and end up needing advice and taking bad advice or wrong advice or unhelpful advice from somebody who is the person who's there offering them the thing that they need to hear in that moment. 
Pike connected with Bellamy, like in a, in an authentic way, because he was the person who was saying the way you feel about Mount Weather is correct. And even though he was pushing, and it was like, yeah, it was like, like you, you want to believe that this is your fault. It's like, yeah, it was your fault. It was my fault too. The guilt that we bear for this thing that happened to our people, feel that guilt, you know? And Bellamy, Bellamy wanted in that moment, like he didn't want to be justified. Like Cain was trying to tell him, like, you didn't do this. Bellamy was like, no, I like, I, I feel like I did. I need to feel that thing. And Pike was like, yeah, feel that thing. Be pissed. Feel that desire for vengeance. Feel that guilt. You know, like I feel it too. We're going to sit here and drink and feel it together. And that's the turning moment, so turning point moment in their relationship. Because in the moment, Bellamy, Bellamy couldn't hear what Cain was trying to tell him. But he could yeah, hear what Pike was yeah. trying to tell him. And it was because Clark wasn't there to tell him what he needed to hear in the way in the way that he can receive that information because she was gone. And so it just felt like in a very sort of small, subtle, underplayed kind of way that there was kind of a little bit of a parallel to that moment in that Clark and Jaha scene where what Clark needed to hear was both you know, the the gentle correction of here's the thing that you are not understanding about the way that your words landed with these people. I, a more seasoned politician, I'm going to mentor you with something that you genuinely need someone to say to you. And because of their relationship that Jaha can, but also to be the one person there who is saying to her, the thing that you are feeling in this moment, which is that you made the only list you could possibly have made is the right way to feel. And so he both sort of like establishes himself as an ally and as a mentor that she's willing to listen to, you know, and we hear her sort of processing kind of the weirdness of it all later with Jasper when she's just kind of like, I'm where she's sort of beginning to see what people saw in him as a leader, where she always just had sort of assumed after he floated her father that it's like, okay, well there's nothing redeemable. But yeah. And now she's kind of like, <laughs> She's beginning to see like, oh, maybe there's something to his point of view. So yeah, I, so I just, I was, so I was thinking a lot about Bellamy and Pike in those kind of Clark and Jaha moments where there's a person who steps in to fill the void when you're totally isolated and you feel like nobody else is, um, is seeing the thing that you're seeing and you just need somebody else to be like, no, I see the thing that you saw and everyone else can, can disagree and everyone else can say whatever, but I'm here to like reflect back to you the reality that you are experiencing as being real and valid, even if no one else says that. So then you don't feel alone, you know, and that's a really powerful emotional connector. Like she's, she's, linked to Jaha in a way now like in in trusting him in a way that I don't I don't think that she ever was before in her whole entire life and that could end up becoming a really fascinating kind of co-leader relationship where he's like really mentoring her or it could end up ending in total disaster if he's either playing some long game or if he ends up going crazy again you know you know it just popped into my head when you're talking about you know like she she needed in that moment someone to sort of recognize her and 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 validate her emotions and kind of like make her feel connected and he gave that to her and he was sort of like there i immediately like the thing that popped in my head was like that's how cults pull people in yeah oh yeah people who wind up in cults you know it's not yeah. like are often highly intelligent but they they tend to be uh psychologically sort of like emotionally vulnerable at the time they make contact with the cult and usually, like, socially isolated um, without a community. So they're feeling sort of, like, adrift, unsafe, unsure. And then the cult comes along and they're like, hey, 
We see you. We validate your feelings. We're going to give you an explanation. We're going to give you a thing that explains all these feelings and promises to fix them. And if you just like stick with us, then you have a community and you're in, you're inside and you're so. <laughs> yeah. So, like it popped into my head and then I was like, fuck, Jihad is cults. <laughs> <laughs> now he is the cult. <laughs> Yeah. He's gone from mi- merely being like a cult aficionado to being like <laughs> to being like a one man cult of personality his own damn self. I see this is why this is why you can't fucking trust him. You're right. You're right. And and it may not be I mean this the same way that cult leaders often believe what they are selling to you like bill cadigan i think is a shyster but i but they're not all shysters sometimes like sometimes the the thing that pulls people in is that they their beliefs they might be like crackpot but they're genuine like they genuinely they believe the thing that they believe and it is the force of that belief that pulls people in and they're offering you something that isn't a hundred percent evil and awful there's this you know the same conversation that happens sometimes with like my my sister is a social worker in oakland and she does a lot of work with people who are transitioning out of um a life of like gang violence or being involved in gangs and and this sort of like privileged white person view of like gangs are bad and terrible and they're dangerous and you shouldn't be in them and they should all be banned and abolished and and just like universally bad it omits the fact that people wouldn't join a gang if it wasn't offering them something that they felt was positive. And what it offers you is like community, someone to take care of your family if something happens to you and a mm-hmm. sense of belonging and a shared common purpose. And so you have to address those things before you can sort of help somebody navigate their way out of that. You have to first acknowledge this was giving you something that was genuinely positive and important and valuable and necessary to you it was giving it to you in a negative and dangerous and destructive way but the thing itself was was real like your need for community yeah. was real you know yeah. and um and yeah and it's the same thing with with cults too where it's like the need for human connection and belonging and to not feel alone is like deep and real and primal and and the need to feel like the reality that you're experiencing is the real reality because somebody else sees and understands it is like this baseline human desire. And so it does really feel like that running little thread that we really sort of that kind of shot to the forefront in the last episode about zealotry, about sort of the single mindedness of, you know, of leaders trying to do the right thing with their people like Jaha already having found a way in his head to rationalize that like that Bill Cadigan wasn't, you know, or Bellamy is kind of like, he sounds like a fucking crackpot. And Jaha's like, <laughs> or... Or he was a leader. He was doing the best for his people. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. So <laughs> so Jaha's already gone there in his head. Like, Jaha's already begun to rationalize Bill Cadigan's behavior. Yeah. Which I feel like we're... Like, I'm already on every level as a human being suspicious of every single thing about Bill Cadigan. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Like, what did he want with those people's money? What was he really doing? He can't possibly have ended up in that bunker. So where did he go? What was he fleecing these people out of? How is he connected to Becca and or Allie? Is it suspicious that he gave that speech two weeks before the bombs fell? Did he know something about Allie getting loose? Like, there's all this stuff that we don't know yet. But the immediate sense is like, this is a shady motherfucker. And I'm side-eyeing him (laughs) hard. And Jaha's like... 
or is he noble and amazing? So like, so that's the that makes me feel like, like Jaha's like he's still he's still Jaha. Yeah, yeah, and it totally makes sense. I mean, with what we were talking about at the beginning about him always being a little bit separate from everyone else. You know, he seems to he never really seems to connect on a personal level. So he's kind of got like some isolation going on and he and he only seems to really derive meaning from his life in terms of being like a leader of people you know so like whenever he's not like in season two or now there's a kind of crisis that happens I think for him in terms of where he has to find some way back to being an inspirational leader because that's the only way that he like understands himself so I think like all of that 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 kind of like isolation combined with that grandiosity like, he is prime cult leader material. Yeah. <laughs> he really, really is. Yeah, he really is. And I feel like we're definitely being set up, I think, in this episode in, in some ways that are really, are really lovely and, and subtle. Like, I think the, the, I think the writing for Jaha so far this season has just been, like, kind of magnificent. It has. And, and Isaiah Washington has been great. Like, I think he's really done a great job. I feel like this is already, in some ways, his best season. I think so. He's going to some interesting new places. Like, there's a, there's a warmth to him in this episode that we haven't seen in a long time. You know? Yeah. Like, there's a, there was very little humanity in him in the same way last season because almost the entire time or really I think the entire time up until like the last moments of the finale he was under Allie's control so that was a whole different kind of creepy serene you know robot Jaha and then we really got to see some kind of crazy person unspooling in you know in season two which was also fun but but he's fully regained his humanity now but he's also he's still got that like he's always got just like a little hint of crazy eyes <laughs> there's just this sort of like fascinating tangle of contradictions of his genuine affection for clark his genuine i think respect for her as a leader his appreciation of the skills that she has his desire to be indispensable to her you know, combined with the fact that he's already epitomizing this belief that we can tell he admired about Cadigan and that I think we've seen him admire about other characters of like this sort of single-minded leader who will do anything for his people. And he's identifying himself with that. You know, I think he yeah. sees himself as the leader who will do anything for his people. And I suspect that that is how he has rationalized the City of Light. Yeah, I would imagine. I mean, like, that's how he rationalizes everything. Yeah, yeah. His intentions were pure. He was trying to save everyone. Yeah, so I think, you know, so what he says to Bellamy, you know, in that scene from the last episode about, well, like, if you meant well, it's fine. You know, like, that's, <laughs> like, that's really, that's his MO. You know, that's who he is. But, you know, it's interesting, like, thinking about that scene again, you know, after we talked about it <laughs> for a long time, yeah, last week, um... When, when it is interesting when Jaha says to Bellamy, your intentions were pure. And that means that, you know, basically like you're fine. It's interesting because I think that Jaha says that. I think that tells you a lot about how Jaha looks back on the choices he's made. He's like, my intentions were pure when I did whatever, you know, when I, when I proselytized to the city of light, when I probably, I'm guessing he probably believes that he had good intentions when he convinced Allie to revoke goodwill or uh, free will. And I think maybe the one other reason that that doesn't land that didn't land for Bellamy that we didn't that it that didn't occur to me last week is that um, Bellamy is aware that his intentions were not pure. He had right, good intentions. Right. His intentions, like he did believe, you know, like it, it, which which wasn't was didn't really come across 
as well as it should have on screen. But like we know from what Jason has said and what Bob has said and everything else, like the intention was that Bellamy did it because he genuinely believed that was the best thing for his people. Right. That that they needed to be, you know, that this was a threat that they needed to be saved from preemptively. But we also know that part of his his motivation and part of why he thought it was the best thing was because he was full of fear and guilt and pain and anger and rage and, you know, and, and, and a lot of that, like, fear was really xenophobic fear. You know, it was a fear yeah. of these people who he's sort of attached a whole bunch of generic beliefs about to, for, you know, he has all sorts of reasons. But the fact is that he, I think he knows, he knows that his, mo- he, he had good motives, but he also had bad motives. You know, right, he had pure right. motives and he also had impure motives. And I think the difference between Pike and Bellamy might be that's really interesting and even between, you know, other, like, like Kane, I think, is another character who would also look back and realize, like, his motives, you know, he had good motives for the calling and he had less good motives for the calling, is that Jaha will always focus on the good intentions as being, like, the existence of them erases, you know, like, you had pure intentions, you had some pure intentions and therefore everything else is excused. And Bellamy is more aware, like, the fact that I had good intentions doesn't remove either the fact that I did it or the fact that I also had bad intentions. And he's exactly. more like yeah. hanging, like this is why Bellamy still like sort of is hanging on to it and believes that it, that it like reflects on him as a person. Cause he's aware that he's not pure. Whereas Jaha, I think believes that he's kind of pure in some sense. Yeah. If he can just sort of like figure out how his intentions were pure at the time that he did it. It's very, very easy. I think for Jaha to find ways to let himself off the hook either under the guise of just of believing like okay well but I was trying to do the right thing so you know it's like I'm fine and also that frustrating thing that people do sometimes when they haven't quite owned up what they did and they're like well but right now we need to move forward and it's like <laughs> yeah, right. no 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 you <laughs> you don't you don't get to move forward yet like we still got to reckon with the thing that happened it's like yeah but the most important thing right now is to you know put up the radiation patch there's a little bit of that going on did you ever think if at the beginning of this season, before the season started, that we would happily spend 50 minutes talking about Jaha? <laughs> Never in my fucking life. This is, I, I, I no longer know myself. I'm like, I'm like becoming this person. Like, I think about Thelonious Jaha so much. Like, you know, it's like, he's like this puzzle that I want to just like, like you just, it, uh, Ugh, like I don't even like it's just in, he's like he's like he's gotten like he got under my skin and it's like making me crazy but like in a, in a way that's really it's so satisfying you know I just I felt like in in the first season he was a neutral middle you know you have Kane is one pole Abby is the other and they're kind of duking it out like the prosecution and defense attorneys you know and you know and we had some sort of empathy for him and then in season two he goes crazy and then in season three he's sort of the big bad you know like like they in in ways that all really felt kind of like lined up from the choices that he had made um and so so in season three I was like oh I just can't stand you like everything bad that's happened <laughs> is your fault uh, in this very sort of like primal way where it's just like why are you doing these terrible things so I was like so I was really like 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 we talked about last week um you know like talking about with Jason like I was really I was rooting for him to die both because it felt like okay this is the this is the clear 
ending to your narrative arc. Like, you've been all about the City of Light for two full seasons. City of Light was your whole storyline. City of Light was your whole, like, life goal. You know, and so it makes narrative sense that the end of his arc would be that he would die when the city of light gets shut down like that felt like sort of story-wise the right thing and also like i just kind of wanted it to happen because i was so mad (laughs) i was just like no you deserve this like this is the punishment that you deserve for the terrible thing that you did to all of these people you know like your choice caused all this carnage to happen and so like you know like my catholic penance brain is like (laughs) you earned this motherfucker you know and so just the the way that they sort of pivoted on that and didn't, you know, the story isn't erasing what happened in the city of light and the utter just clusterfuck that it has caused among everybody, you know, and, and the way it sort of has shaken up, you know, both with the grounders and with the sky crew. Um, so like the consequences of that are sort of continuing to live on in the story in, in an enormous way while also like, Jaha's story not being about, you know, continual penance forever for this thing that he did, but being about this whole other sort of side of him. I just, yeah, I just find him, I just find him fascinating. And, (laughs) and I, I have never been more like delighted to be wrong than being like, Jaha should die. And I'm kind of low key (laughs) salty that he's still alive. What are they going to do with him? Like, I'm sure Isaiah has like a bulletproof contract. They couldn't get him out of it. What the hell are they going to do? How are they going to like write a season four storyline for Jaha that I'll care about? And here we are 59 minutes into recording and I'm still yelling about Thelonious (laughs) Jaha. What is this dark magic? Like, what is this sorcery? They have the cult. He's a cult leader. Oh my God. He sucks you in. Oh my God. He got me too. <laughs> God no, damn it. Claire, uh, we have to send you to a deprogramming. Yeah. <laughs> From the ashes we will rise. <laughs> <laughs> ah, that's the uh, story. <laughs> Jesus. <sighs> so Monty. So Monty. <laughs> um. So this was also what a great. Monty Jasper episode separately and together both just in terms of it being really nice even even in a way that is that sort of has lots of of darkness threaded through it to see little bits and pieces of the season one Jasper and Monty that they were even though it's flipped on its head a lot you know like the cold open is tons of fun until Jasper decides to risk letting the black rain eat him up in front of his friends which is awful so to go back to beginning of the podcast when we were talking about the prank with Jaha and how there's a darker, you know, mildly malicious kind of edge to it. Like it was a little bit, it's a pretty extreme prank, drugging him and putting him out there in the middle of a lake. And there's some degree of like actual risk to Jaha there. And, and then the kind of like thing about floating. I think that's really fitting for Jaha because like running through all of everything that Jaha does in this episode, all three pranks really, um, but especially that one and the, and the rain one, there's an undercurrent of sort of like anger and kind of like nihilism and revenge to his pranks. You know, like they're funny and they're sort of like, and they're, and they are playful in a way, but they're also like really, really earnest, you know, like that yeah. sort of like, now you know how it feels to be floated Jaha. Like it's a joke, but it's one of those jokes that also, that's like not really totally a joke, you know, right, it's like, right. it's like, this is, this is a joke that's meant to also sort of like convey a truth in it that's or you know it's it's a joke that like comes with a knife you know yeah yeah so like the rain scene it kind of like it 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 
it logically sets up the rain scene, I think, because because Jasper, when he's out there, he thinks he's playing a prank. Like, Jasper thinks this is funny. He thinks, I think, on some level, like, to him, this is the same thing that they just did to Jaha, which right. I think kind of exposes, like, the seriousness behind his decision to do that to Jaha. But obviously, the, like, the truth in that joke, I think, is him exposing to everyone his like not just like willingness to die but like his desire to die you know like yeah. he's you like the joke is like haha like if it had been black rain i would have been totally cool with it and like the basis of the joke is also his complete disregard for either his own life um or really for like i mean let's it's like tricky i was gonna say or the, for the feelings of his friends i mean i think that's a little bit tricky because like on the one hand that's true on the other hand, like, I think, you know, when you're suicidal, you just have, like, a completely different sort of relationship to what your life means to other people. And you're kind of, like, too wrapped up in your own pain to really understand yeah. that, that you know, that, that what you do to yourself is going to hurt other people. Like, I think that could be, it could be really, really hard to sort of, like, you know, it's, like, one of those things where it's, like, that genuinely hurt Monty a lot. Like, that was a really really terrible thing to do to Monty and to Clark and Harper and all of his friends because like that was like really traumatic for them but I think in like a way he he genuinely couldn't understand that and yet at the same time it's like it's like that really complicated thing where I think he did it because he wants them to know yeah it was it was really it was really complicated because I do think that that he's made a decision that it's more important to him to find this escape you know to to not be around to not be feeling the pain that he's feeling to sort of put that all behind him and you know and no longer be here on this earth that that is that that outweighs what's going to happen to everyone that he's leaving behind and that's an emotionally authentic thing yes definitely yeah um and it isn't a thing where you can say you know what he did was like it's you can't put a right and a wrong on it yeah it's like it's fucked like, up but you can't really say that it's yeah but it's not really right or wrong yeah it's coming from this like deep place of like of of his own you know pain and trauma you know and that and that even even when he's doing these things that seem kind of goofy like with the jaha prank or whatever like yeah like you said like, it comes from there's this dark edge to it the way there was this sort of dark edge to the jokes that he makes and his sort of like lightheartedness it's like he's only able to be happy and cheerful and and have any kind of fun because he's like well i'm gonna be dead in six months so like i'm in a really good mood right now you know so like that like that dark thread's kind of always right there and i and i think like it makes sense for jasper to be a character who i don't think has like really equipped to express his feelings in a different way you know like this is this is kind of like a logical way for his personality to be sort of processing and manifesting the, you know, the feelings that he has. Like, he's he's not ever going to be the kind of person who's going to sit down and, like, without being forced to have just, like, a sort of heart-to-heart -heart with Monty, you know? Like, right, right. He has to express this stuff somehow, and so it comes out in pranks. And so it's, like, kind of like this metastasizing almost of, like, the sort of, like, like goofy, good-hearted prankster, it sound, you know, that he was, he and, he and Monty were when they were before they got, you know, put in the skybox, even the beginning of season one, into this kind of, like, darker, more aggressive, you know, sort of, like, angry thing that it is now as a result of the experiences that he's had. Yeah, and it's really nice to see that, once again, it's like, 
the character driving the plot. Like, it's really, yeah. it's nice to see those connective threads where season one Jasper and season two Jasper and season three Jasper are all merged together in season four Jasper, both in the writing and in Devin's performance. You, you look at him now and you feel, you genuinely feel every single piece of the things that make Jasper Jasper like both that kind of prankishness and the kind of like mischievous sense of humor and the fact that he has the kind of brain that would think of something like this you know and and find it funny you know combined with this just deep deep pain and grief for not just for Maya but for the possibility that Mountweather offered him of like a home and belonging and being safe and like the bullshit of living in this like totally fucked up planet finally being over because he had a sort of like safe place to be and then it's like no back into the shit again and then finding that again with the city of light and being pulled out of it again both times by Clark so all of those shades are sort of wrapped up in in this new iteration of him where I feel like it's 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 very 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 difficult to watch but it's also writing wise is so satisfying because, you know it feels like it's it's really it's going somewhere really clear and I and I still worry like I really don't want him to kill himself. I really don't want that to be no. the story that they're telling. But I also do feel like I'm really interested because because they've had so few, I think, real kind of substantive conversations in the past couple of seasons. But like every time Jasper is in conversation with Clark in this new version of Jasper who just says everything, post-grief Jasper who holds nothing back, the way that he relates to Clark and the way the things that he says land in her because she cares about him so much. It brings up really interesting things in Clark, like that scene, yeah. like, like him driving her to do something as extreme as shock batoning him and the way that he kind of like calls her out in that scene, you know, in the brig. He brings things out in her that I think are really interesting because there always sort of is that reminder. And Monty does it too. You know, Monty like says it to her straight out. She's aware that they don't like the person that she's becoming and she's also feels so she feels like it's both fair and unfair at the same time. They've known her since the very, very beginning and they've been on her side since the very, very beginning. Like Jasper and Monty were for like two of the first of the delinquents who were really like Clark's allies, you yeah. know, from the, from the get go. They went on the first trip to try to walk to Mount Weather together and then she and Monty worked together to try to save Jasper not only from you know his spear wound but then also from Bellamy and Murphy they've been on her side and they've been looking to her as the kind of like leader the person that they trust the person that they they really like sort of like and have faith in um, and and believe in the goodness of maybe longer than almost anyone you know because like they were they were on her side before Bellamy was yeah. I think Octavia is the only other person still alive, which I, breaks my heart because that makes me think of Wells. But <laughs> I know, um, you know, so it's like Wells and Finn who are both gone now, and Octavia who's basically gone, you know, and and in any case doesn't I don't think has like a particularly good relationship with Clark. Like yeah. she's been very critical of Clark the last couple of seasons. Um, and then it was Monty and Jasper, and so I think to have them look at her. To have Monty look at her and say, like, who have you become? You know, yeah. like, I don't recognize the person that you've become. You're doing things that, that the clerk that I know wouldn't do. I think that really hurts because there are people that she, she really, she, that, that really, really know her. That she feels like really, really know her. Yeah. You know, it's like different from having even someone like, 
Kane say that to her? You know, because, like, he knew her, but he didn't know her. You know, like, he... he yeah. I mean, like, he probably knew her as a kid, but they weren't, like, close or anything like that. Yeah, and Jasper Monte were there for all of it from the very beginning. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And so... And and I think she's sort of, like, still counting on them, looking her... I mean, like, part of it is just kind of heartbreaking. Like, I think it matters to Clark that somebody still looks at her and sees Clark, you know, like, the real original Clark. You know, it's heartbreaking when Monty tells her that he doesn't, that, that he doesn't think that's her anymore. That scene was... I mean, I, this this whole episode was, was full of really, really kick-ass scenes, but the Monty and Clark scene was one of the and I was you know since we got the little teeny tiny snippet of it in the trailer I've, I've been sort of looking forward to like waiting like what is the context of this going to be seeing like because it's jarring seeing Monty angry at Clark like it made me yeah. sort of instantly from the trailer I was like what's going to happen like how how did those two people get to that place and it's so it's so devast- devastating because you feel because again there's no there's no wrong like you feel how much it must have cost Clark to not put Monty on the list. Like you feel, you know, and we, and we already saw, you know, in this scene in the previous episode with Bellamy, where we sort of see her, you know, just agonizing over, over like we, we know how hard that was for her. We watched it happen, but in the way that she tries to explain, you know, to him personally, and then also, explaining about Harper, which she knows is also devastating to Monty, you know, he has two reasons to be furious at her. We see what it cost her to feel like she couldn't, that she felt like she couldn't afford to choose her friends just because they were her friend. And the pain of that, like that she, of course she wanted to just pick people that she liked first and that she felt like as the leader that she couldn't afford to do that, you know, and then, and then her having to kind of reckon with, again, like, like like Jaha tells her like the way that that makes Monty feel you know and for Monty to say like you know like which is such a Monty thing to say like he's not arguing with the strategic practicality of the list that she made he's he's wondering how she turned into a person who could do that with what feels to him like it probably was easy well and he also he objected to the secrecy right yeah yeah exactly yeah, so, which I think is actually really like on a kind of like thematic level in terms of just thinking through if the list is kind of a way to kind of work through some different versions of trying to solve these various sort of like practical and then leadership problems so like the list is a good practical solution probably necessary but secrecy was a bad decision for sort of like ethical reasons and potentially for political reasons although it had its practical aspect um, you know, it's, I think it's kind of interesting to watch how, like, the various messages that Clark gets, because, like, we already talked about Jaha. You know, Jaha's version of it was, like, I get why you did that. That made sense. But you need to basically, like, give people the impression that they have a say in their fate. They have to sort of, like, have the, the feeling that they have a say. And I think it's interesting to have Monty in contrast, because Monty basically says the same thing as, like, kind of in a way says the same thing as Jaha, right? Which is, like, I don't dispute either the list, you know, I don't dispute me not being on a list and I don't dispute necessarily the existence of the list. I dispute you keeping it secret because people deserve to know. But like Monty's version of that, I think Monty's reasoning for that is very different. Well, I think to me, it felt like one of the things that I really liked about it, it was a little teeny tiny Jake Griffin callback. 
you know, like, yeah. so, so yeah. we had, we had Jasper, you know, like Jasper is, pulls a Jake, you know, he runs over to try to like shout out the truth to everybody. And Clark is the Jaha, you know, like she shock lashes and arrests him out of nowhere, you know, and they were friends. And, and that's something I think is really shocking to Monty to witness. And then Monty pulls the Abby Griffin later and like, you know, right. runs over and like against Clark's, you know, protests, like yells out the truth to everybody because Monty, like Abby, I think genuinely has a perhaps unfounded but deeply held belief that people, given the right information, will make the right choice and do the right thing. You know, so the way that yeah. Abby, the way that Abby felt like releasing Jake's message to the whole ship risking her own neck for it was the only possible solution to the culling. And the way that Raven earlier was saying, like, we have to tell people, you know, like Raven's in the same position as, you know, as Monty, we have to tell people, we have to get more minds on this. People have to know, like, we have to engage the whole group in how we're going to make these decisions because not just because that's like the most efficient way, but also because, don't we want to be those kind of people? And I think that's part of yeah. where Monty is at, which is also yeah. where Abby was at, you know, in season one, which is like, don't we want to be the kind of people who lead our people this way? Like, don't we want to be those leaders? Or do you want to be the person who is locking people up for threatening to talk, which is the root of Clark's anger at Jaha and her mother because that's what they did to Jake and then she does the exact same thing she shock lashes Jasper before he can tell the truth and has him arrested and locked up you know so so again in a in a sort of are we are we subtly questioning you know whether like whether Jaha is on the side of the angels or not I do think that the connection that we get between them and her sort of opening up and learning to trust him but also the parallels that we're seeing that however they shuffle the deck with these season one, like kind of little parallel callback moments that Clark is always the Jaha. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Bellamy was the Abby and Raven was the Jake before the first time. Right. And now Jasper is the Jake and Monty is the Abby, but Clark is the Jaha. Clark is still doing, you know, and she like, she's still herself. Like she's still, she's still doing things that feel like what Clark would do, but she's, but the narrative puts her in the position where she is the person who in those sort of little moments of parallel is making the Jaha choice. And, and I think that that's really interesting because that's being juxtaposed with the two of them having this relationship that's getting closer and with him being a person who is sort of establishing himself as a support to her and hearing Jasper really say, if you've reached a place in your life where you're like, you know who's really wise? Thelonious Jaha. <laughs> like, you know, ch- check yourself before you wreck yourself, basically. I really enjoy Jasper as the Greek chorus. I think it's a good role for him. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think I think there's, there's something in his kind of no fucks given attitude that allows him to be sort of the one kind of true neutral observer because he straight up does not care. Um, where it's like he's sort of sitting back and he's being like, yeah, I'm seeing you. You know, yeah. like I'm just like... <laughs> Be mad if you want to. I don't care. I'm just going to tell you straight out what it is. And so I, so I think that it's, you know, I, I'm my my brain is you know honed through years of practice to always look for the Jake Griffin parallels <laughs> and references because I love him so much. But um, but I do feel like all of these sort of little beats that echo 
the big, messy, difficult choices that we saw Jaha, the leader, have to make before about floating his friend, about the culling, about trying to keep quiet this terrible, you know, potential doom in the hopes they could maybe avert it without having to panic everyone, this sort of instinctive fear that people will respond in a negative way and that they kind of have to be managed, you know, like that the leader who knows what's best for them has to kind of slither in them a little bit to make sure that, you know, you're preventing chaos. That season one Jaha kind of mentality, I think that's what Monty is responding to when he looks at her and he's like, I don't recognize you, you know, yeah. because she's she's still making choices that feel like Clark. Like she hasn't become a different person. It's all rooted in who she is. But I think he's right to say the way that he perceives Clark as a leader, like the Clark that he has believed all this time at her heart is the person that she really is, is not a person that he believes could calculatedly sacrifice her friends and and in secret, you know? And there was sort of an interesting little, I think, uh, little echo between the Clark and Monty scene with the Kane and Rowan scene, which is that, like, we understand from both of their perspectives why they didn't immediately come out with the truth. You yeah. know, like, like why, why Sky Crew didn't tell Asgeta about the Nightbloods or, you know, because they don't know yet if it's going to work and that they didn't tell him about Arcadia because like that, because that was a little shady because right. they're not planning on, on inviting <laughs> Ice Nation, you know, and truly that, that everybody, that they really are looking at that as like, this is our fallback option. Nobody has stopped hunting for a solution that will save everybody, but they don't know enough yet to be able to make that promise. And so it makes sense why, you know, together, Clark and Kane, the strategic brains, decided keep the list quiet and keep the Luna thing quiet. It makes sense. It makes tactical sense. But also the way Monty and everybody else feels and the way Roan and Ice Nation feel when it's like, why didn't you just tell us like where, you know, why are you expecting trust from me and you're not offering me honesty to earn that trust? Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like that's a good way to put it. Like Roan's position is so comprehensible, but also so is Kane's, yeah. you know, and Monty's position is so comprehensible, but also so is Clark's. And, and so again, it's one of those sort of like, there is no easy right answer. There is no like, Oh shit, I did the wrong bad thing. It's like, everyone is, Everyone is behaving the way that circumstances dictate their person in that position would behave. It's just that you, it is hard to expect people to trust you once they've found out that you were dishonest with them, you know, even though they meant well. Maybe this might be a good segue to the Polis storyline. Because I think like, especially with Rowan, it was a huge leap of faith for him to believe Clark and to believe, you know, uh, Sky Crew that, you know, that this, this yeah. eventual disaster was coming. And it's something that he, that he believed kind of like based on his relationship with them to enormous political detriment to himself. Yeah. He put his ass on the line yeah. for Clark. And it, and it backfired for him pretty big time in a couple, like he, he believes that he's lost the flame now, which is a huge deal. You know, he's lost, he's in like an extremely precarious position. And so, so his, this faith that he put in them has been, you know, has not turned out well for him so far. And so to find out that they've been concealing information from him, Roan's sort of like declaration, our alliance is over, makes perfect sense. 
you know, it's devastating for Sky Crew and for the rest of our sort of heroes, but but there's kind of like he's also after last week he's sort of backed into a political position where he he doesn't really have another option i i found myself like asking myself why didn't they explain this to rowan like did did they is it because it's a science thing and they felt like there was sort of that rowan might trust it to be on board with it and the other grounders wouldn't does that sort of imply in some way that if they do if Abby does find a way to make night blood serum and they have to distribute it to everybody, how are they going to do that? Are they going to do that by force? Are they going to do that by manipulation? You know, like how, like work, working around the sort of constraints of grounder sort of distaste or fear for technology. Is it related to the sort of the rise of this kind of anti-tech cult? You know, I don't know, but it did, it did feel like I, I did wonder why at least with Roan individually one-on-one, why Kane didn't loop him in, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it character-wise. You know, it wasn't like they gave Kane the idiot ball. Like, it, like yeah. it makes sense intuitively. It didn't feel like we have to do this and make him not do the thing that he really but should it do. It feels like a characteristic poor decision, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I, yeah, I feel, it feels, it felt in character for him. It felt like, it's like it was definitely a mistake. It felt like a, a relatable mistake. I think that they're aware of the fact that it's really, really risky for them to admit that they know where Luna is. Yes, yes. Like, to me, that's the thing that that makes it feel like, okay, I, I, I get why they felt like secrecy was necessary because what is the first thing that, like, you know, like Echo and Roan have gotten hold of the wrong end of the stick, but it makes sense why they think like, okay, so the chip is quote unquote destroyed, or is it really, I wasn't there, so, like, I feel like you could be playing me, and you have a nightblood. So the first thing they think is, if the flames still exist, like, you're planning a fucking ascension, like, you're making a power play, and they're not, but it also makes absolute sense why, like, that's the only thing that Roan and Echo think that you do with the nightblood. Yeah, right. The secret yeah. nightblood, you know? Like, that's what they would do, that's what Antari was. Yeah, exactly. You know, Ant- like, Antari was a human power play from Naya. You know, like, you find a Nightblood, you keep him secret, you amass an army, you build yourself your little radiation-fortified fort, and then you wait for Asgada to die out from the Black Rain, and then you're like, surprise, bitches, we have a flame and a Nightblood. That's what Echo would do. Right, because, like, cause, you know, Roan's still playing the Game of Thrones, right? Like, Roan's still, like, like, this is his primary way of understanding the motivation. So he doesn't really totally 100 100% believe that Kane and Sky Crew are not playing that game. And they're not. You know, they're like we're, exactly. we're the game we're playing yeah. is like fuck 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 how do we not like all die in the next 2 months? But Roan doesn't really have any reason to believe other than faith in their honesty to believe that story. And once he finds out that they've been lying to him, then that faith in their honesty evaporates and then, you know, what you gonna do? I think that the fact that Roan feels like he's been waiting for, I think he tells Kane it's been three weeks since Clark left Polis, you know, waiting for somebody to give him something that he can use to justify to his sort of ever fracturing, you know, political alliance, why people as untrustworthy as Sky Crew, who brought this, you know, plague on everybody else, like, why suddenly they and Ice Nation are all of a sudden best friends for no real reason. And because he's really been hamstrung in what he can say, the fact that he personally seems to have 
some degree of trust for a couple people in the Sky Crew. You know, that doesn't, he, you know, he likes Clark just fine. He likes most of these people just fine. Like, he doesn't, he he definitely genuinely seems like in that last scene, like, he's he's real pissed at Echo that Octavia is dead. You know, like, he did not plan that. He did not want that. Like, I think him making her, like, no, you're going to fucking say it yourself because you fucked up, you know? So I think that his, like, his respect for a bunch of these people individually is separate from the fact that, like, they have put him in an untenable position as the king, as a leader, where, like, he has nothing to give his, like, his own people, let alone the rest of the alliance, of, like, wait, I'm sorry, why are we not murdering (laughs) Sky Crew again? It's like... Because yeah, right, yeah. I said just, so. Just because. Just trust me. And then, like, yeah. <laughs> That's not going to fly. So he's being forced to, you know, ask for blind faith and compliance over and over again. And it's only so long that people will put up with that. He doesn't have the flame. He doesn't have a nightblood. There is no commander. Everyone knows that. He's clearly only an interim leader. And because he isn't a nightblood, that's all he'll ever be. Like, he needs, you know, he needs an Ice Nation commander. He needs there to be a nightblood. And so because of that, because, you know, Sky Crew knows that, it makes perfect sense for who they are that, like, the last thing that they can afford right now is for some, you know, is for someone like Echo to go rogue, come hunt them down and find them, kill Luna, you know, and and remove their last best chance at you know at survival for everybody you know because somebody somewhere is afraid that what they're actually planning on doing with luna is making a power play for Rome. so everyone is behaving in totally straightforward ways that make sense for who they are as people and also it's just a clusterfuck so you you really feel the stakes for kane his sort of desperation at trying to hold this together which really you know that really lovely so hard to watch given how the you know episode ends that scene between him and octavia oh god yeah whereas which is just like i mean it's 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 hard to watch even even before you know what's coming next because she's so wounded she's so pissed and hurt and angry you know like that he fires her for being too murdery basically it's like (laughs) (laughs) there was like okay the beginning of that scene has a really intense kid getting called into the principal's office vibe yeah that like did sort of like for the first you know 30 seconds i was a little bit like okay this is kind of funny because like she is so a sulky teenager yeah yeah being like called into the office by the principal for like fighting in the hallways yeah yeah exactly (laughs) yeah it was like it was like 33 percent disappointed dad yeah 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 33 (laughs) percent principal's office and then 33 percent like boss you're fired you know like it was yeah yeah yeah. it was all it was like the three worst conversations of your life kind of like (laughs) rolled into one you know but it was a beautiful scene and it was like beautifully done and i loved that we got that sort of like moment of like all this stuff this sort of like darker and darker journey that octavia has been on i think it was really great that we got a moment where a character in the world sort of pauses and says like dude you've been killing a lot of people like kind of pointlessly i love that they mentioned pike like i'm glad yes. that somebody was like you didn't have to kill pike there's a series of deaths that you are responsible for that were never necessary you know that were reflective of a kind of like unilateral decision that you made that you didn't make for good reasons you know and i think that and mentioning yeah the 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 pike thing maybe maybe so emotional it's like kane <laughs> we didn't really get to see anyone sort of 
grieving for Pike, you know, but I think that it's interesting that like it was Brian first and then Kane here just to sort of like remind us what Octavia did was murder. What Octavia did was not lawful justice. It was not, you know, like it was the kind of like, this isn't who we are, you know, and Brian says it first, you know, two episodes ago and then hearing Kane reiterate that here, you know, to her. And then also I think it was really important and you really saw how it landed with her when he says lincoln taught you better than this yeah like, that's kind of like a whoa that's the big that's the big that's like the boom that's yeah moment. that's like that's kind of the mic drop because nobody yeah, yeah. nobody mentions lincoln's name to octavia like nobody yeah. goes there nobody crosses that line you know and and kane does it like knowingly like he he like that's the that's sort of the nuclear option that's the last kind of i think bullet in his gun like trying to get through to her it's like when he's like a warrior knows when not to kill you are not the person that you think that you are octavia yeah you know yeah. and and it's such a hard thing to hear but also Somebody who isn't Bellamy needed to say it. Yes, you know? definitely. And I just think, I just think it's so important that, I mean, I've always, I've always, I'm so, I love their relationship. I'm so invested in their relationship. But um, I feel like, you know, when he, when he tells her, sit down and she sits <laughs> down and she actually did it, you know, it's like, that's growth. Like they're like, <laughs> like, so I think, I think one of the things that's really heartbreaking about that scene is that Kane's opinion of Octavia really matters to her. And because she's kind of, she still has that sort of silky teenager, you know, like thing. And because she's got this wall up of, of this just sort of pure, unfiltered rage, you know, that she's been sort of living out, you know, like becoming the person that she's become. Um, I think that she doesn't show it. I think that Octavia doesn't really show that when she respects a person, their opinion of, her matters to them and that's why it hurts her so badly to be feel like she's being rejected by indra you know in season two and season three like that's why like that's really hard for her you know because yeah. she's because she's decided that you know like indra is like her person and so feeling like indra pushed her away or or rejected her disapproved of her it's like it pisses her off but it's also the wound i think goes deeper than that and so seeing you know, the look on her face when when kane tells her like you're no longer part of my team, I'm sending you home. She's mad, but she's also so hurt. I think also for Octavia, she has been trying to find her place in the world. Really, you know, her journey has been in a lot of ways trying to figure out where in where in the world she belongs. And like last season, we got that one really beautiful Blake siblings moment in 303 where they were sitting outside of Mount Weather and he and she says she's leaving and he says you'll always belong with me. And like that's beautiful and I think it's true, you know, and and it and that matters a lot. But at the same time like what Octavia Octavia always has known that she belongs she has a place with Bellamy, but what she's never had because she grew up as the secret, you know, under the floorboards. She's never had a place in the wider world. Like she's never right. had a kind of sense of like where she fits and how she matters um, to a larger community. And I think that's the thing that she's been struggling with, especially the last two seasons. And she, she, for totally logical reasons, she doesn't feel comfortable or like she totally fits with the sky people, you know, because they, they're the ones who kept her locked up. She was always a kind of like outcast. And so, so she's been sort of like trying, I think struggling to find a place and she, you know, like, so, so Inder became her person and Lincoln became her person. And like the, the, I think the, like the 
interesting and, and sort of, but I think maybe it's still a little bit painful thing for Octavia. And we saw this last season is that she found people to fit with, but it's like, you know, she had Indra for a while and she had Lincoln, but she's never really part of tree crew. She's kind of like part of, She's, she's Lincoln's person and she's part of Indra's crew, but she was never really tree crew, you know? And she's never really sky crew. So she's kind of just been like a little bit of this and a little bit of that and kind of ill-fitting everywhere in a way that definitely has, was a struggle for her. And I think maybe another painful part of that moment where Kane says to her, you're fired, go home, is that being Kane's bodyguard, right-hand person, assassin person in Polis, with Tree Crew, but, like, she had a spot, you know? Yeah. She had a place in her community. She had a, like, role that only she could fulfill that made her, like, indispensable, that made her important, that was, like, that, that put her in a position where she was protecting the people she cared about, where, like, she she was sort of, like, actively engaged in in, like, what happens in the world. And so him firing her also takes that away from her. Yeah. She was part of something... She was doing something the only she could do that drew on, you know, on all of her skills. And I and I think that in a lot of ways, like the Kane and Octavia relationship is always, you know, I mean, it's always been a small one. You know, like it's it's always sort of like little it's like little moments. But I think in in seasons two and three and in this one, what I like about it, why I find it so like it makes me, you know, feel like feel all kinds of dad feels is because I do feel <laughs> like, you know, from the beginning, from when he watches her fighting in season two and kind of helps her inside. It's like Kane sees potential in Octavia because of who she is specifically like the specific skills that she has and, and background that she has and the things that she's been through that are useful and important in a way where he's really the first of the adults who's ever sort of reached out to her. And so when he realizes in season two that they need her knowledge of grounder culture because they don't know enough about how grounder society works and she's the person who has that information and then in season three where you know because she lived under the floorboards for you know her entire life and she can sneak in and out of tiny enclosed spaces in a way that nobody else can that she's the person that you know and also because she has the relationship that she has with indra and the grounders that she's the only person who can like sneak out through an escape hatch and like make these sort of secret runs back and forth to carry information there's things that only octavia can do and so so it makes perfect beautiful sense that you know when they're in polis and he's trying to sort of hang on to his seat as a grounder ambassador and as a clan leader and fighting with rowan to kind of keep everything in balance um it feels so perfect and right that the two of them you know that kane and octavia together as the two people, I think, besides Clark that have the deepest, most intuitive understanding of grounder life, that she's the person that he would pick to be, like, his right-hand man. Yeah. Because he's always been that person for her. Like, he's always been the one who sees... In a way that's different where, like, like she, you know, she knows, like, Bellamy loves her because he's her brother. And she has friends who love her because she's her friend. But I think with, with Kane, it's, like, to have somebody who is a leader of her own people say, there is a, there is a place for you here in Sky Crew because of the part of you that loves the grounders like like there is there's a place for somebody like you who has a foot in both worlds that's the side of her that kane is like we need somebody like you octavia blake we need like you specifically because of your relationship with lincoln because of your relationship with indra because of the things that you know that none of these other people know and the things that you can do that none of these other people can do you are the person that we need hearing that from somebody who on the arc 
would have represented everything that she hated and dreaded about the arc and everything about the part of that world that like trapped her and kept her down. You know, I think there's something really moving in the flip for both of them of Kane recognizing that Octavia's duality, that's what makes her feel like she doesn't belong anywhere is the thing that he thinks like makes her the most necessary. He's not asking her to pick between one or the other, the way everyone else is kind of in some way asking her to pick, or or it makes her feel like her not being either A or B means that she's nothing. And I think for Kane, it's not that she's neither A or B, it's that she's both A and B, and he needs those, he needs her to be both of those things. And so I think in some ways, he and Lincoln, I think, are the only two people really who don't at any point ask her to pick a team. I mean, I think Indra's, Indra's own character evolution changes it somewhat, but like initially why Indra pushes her away is because she's basically like, you have to choose between like us or them. Right. Indra's like, you're not one of us. Like, and you have to sort of like disavow your sky crewness in order to be tree crew. And, and, you know, Bellamy to some extent asked that of her as well. Um, kind of on and off throughout the series. Yeah, he doesn't like hold a gun to her head and, you know, and say like, pick or go. But he doesn't hide the fact that he would prefer that she be only Sky Crew. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, so it's like the, there's very few people who sort of embrace the fact that she is, that she's trying to sort of straddle two worlds and embody something else, some sort of emergent new thing. Which is interesting, actually, when you think about her sort of like, quote unquote, dying and coming back. I'm sort of like, anytime someone in a fictional text dies and then comes back, and especially when they fall into water and come out of it, you'd always like want to be like a little bit like, okay, so rebirth. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So being reborn and then also having been in water cleansed. Yeah. Um, you know, so, (laughs) (laughs) so, so I'm sort of curious to see if and how those kinds of, you know, that kind of theme might be developed, you know, how, how her death and sort of rebirth in this episode, particularly after, you know, I feel like that conversation with Kane and her getting fired is sort of like, perhaps maybe the climax, or I guess like the nadir of her dark path, you know, like this is the bottom. And then having hit bottom. And also she fell into ravine. So she really, right. really, really she hit bottom. She literally hit bottom. The yeah. absolute bottom <laughs> fell into water, was cleansed, and was reborn. All right. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> um. <laughs> and if we're going to, if we're going to, you know, carry that Jesus metaphor, you know, to his conclusion, <laughs> everyone else believes that she's dead. Yes. Yes. So she's like really actually like, like being reborn into the world. You know, so like, I guess the question is like, what is she, what is she being reborn as, you know, like what is this sort of like symbolic death and rebirth going to make it possible for her to be, or or like what new Octavia is going to be like sort of generated out of this experience. And I think, you know, it's, it's like probably meaningful that that death happened while she was on her way from Polis to Arcadia, you know, as she's in transition, she's in the middle from one space to another, a liminal space, as we call it in my mm-hmm, in my business. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> um, 
you know, as she's in transition from sort of like Grounder City to Arcadian City. So I, so I wonder if this isn't the sort of like the closing of the story of the Octavia who's really like sort of torn and conflicted over her place in the world and and how to cope with the various tensions and then also like losses that she's experienced. And so like this is a sort of moment when having emerged from it, she might begin to become a character who can who can integrate these different things into herself so that she can embody a new path potentially, which I feel like is where Octavia was always kind of going, you know, and I feel, I feel like if Lincoln were still alive, like those two, two like their union would kind of like yeah. symbolize the union of these two worlds. Um, but since Lincoln is gone, I wonder if it is an Octavia, only Octavia herself who might wind up in that position. I, I think so. I mean, I, I always, from the beginning of, of the, you know, of the whole show up until the point that Lincoln died, I was convinced that end game, that like the very, you know, like this, the, the series finale, wherever they end up, wherever they end up and whoever ends up alive, that Lincoln and Octavia with a baby, who's the first child to be born of <laughs> Grounder and Sky Crew, you know, as like the symbol of hope and possibility and like life moving forward and the merging of these two cultures always felt like, okay, so this is, so whatever whatever happens this is gonna be part of it and now of course that's yeah. off that's off the table which is fine because she's still you know 16 so like i <laughs> like, like i would have required like a 10-year time jump you know i do really like that 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 feels like the direction that they're going what i'm interested in is i mean it, it, just because of and we'll get to this the, the the chamber of horrors that was that like emotional final Holistic oh, cluster fact. <laughs> After we've sort of sealed ourselves, but um, but I, but what I'm interested in is, um, I mean, I guess how how long they sort of drag out, you know, the separation of of you know, Bellamy thinks Octavia is dead, and Octavia doesn't know that. What, how her relationship with him changes after her almost dying after him believing that she's dead you know does that and after her come you know after her sort of calling out on the carpet by kane being confronted with like you know with who she's become a series of cold-blooded murders like you chopped a dude's head off yeah for political expediency in cold blood that's pretty extreme <laughs> yeah yeah and then and then her going through this yeah like this sort of near death and kind of rebirth experience and so i just what i what i wonder coming out of this is are we are we sort of moving towards the moment where like this is octavia about to clear the hurdle of like not not just her grief for lincoln and who that turned her into but her her anger at and her distance from her brother because, and who that turned her into, you know, and all yeah. of the sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah. all the things, yeah. all the things that were sort of, that were building and building and building and building and building over the course of season three, you know, her sense of displacement, her frustration at, even at the beginning before anything bad had happened, feeling just sort of restless and trapped, you know, at Arcadia, not feeling like she stayed at home or that she knew who she was or whatever, you know, because the, the first thing that happens isn't losing Lincoln that displaces her, it's Lincoln's kill order. It's like that they're like, they're hiding out in Arcadia you know she can't go back to her to tree crew which where she wants to you know and so all of these sort of threads that were building up over the course of all of season three to make her feel so angry and isolated that then when the big terrible thing happens she just fucking snaps you know so I so what I'm hopeful about is that maybe the the inevitable sort of moment of reconciliation with you know with both Bellamy and Kane separately who who are both carrying such just staggeringly profound 
guilt, you know, for separate reasons, for not, for what happened to her, for their own sense of feeling like this is their fault, that they weren't able to protect her, that she was in this situation because they put her there. You know, when they finally realize that she's alive, you know, and, and how long they're going to drag out that horror and just keep us in complete and total misery. You know, I, <laughs> like, I hope it's next episode, but also it probably won't be next episode. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is that I think, so, so the wrinkle, I think, um, with Octavia I mean, I think this probably marks the the nadir and she's going to start coming back up in terms of just like, you know, her going into sort of like total just like darkness before moving on into the next phase. I still feel pretty sure that she's going to be linked to Ilion somehow. Like, I think her story is is like connected to Ilion for a bunch of reasons, probably because of the blue butterfly thing, which I just think is like, you know, that like sort of emblem for both of them, but then also because of the vengeance thing, you know, they both are sort of like motivated in the same way. So I think her kind of movement, I think her development on that issue will be somehow connected to him. But interestingly, I think, so like, I I feel like this episode was like, there's like a lot of action, a lot of stuff happened, but like plot wise, it was really 90% just like setting other things up. We had a lot of like fights and peril and stuff like that. But plot wise, it was some stuff happened in Arcadia. But I think in terms of Polis and then the island, it was mostly just like, we have to get these people to this particular position so the next thing can happen. And interestingly, I think, you know, so so like Octavia has to learn how to like process her grief in a way that isn't about vengeance and anger. You know, like that's part of what she needs to learn in order to fully reconcile with her brother. She needs to sort of think about what family means to her, which I think right. is another way that Ilion might kind of fit in. You know, like thinking about like family and, and loss of family, she you know, sort of needs to like come to recognize the importance that Bellamy had for her. But I think on Bellamy's side, the fact that Echo is the one who quote unquote killed Octavia and the camera lingers on her face a few times yeah. to show that she has deep, if, if not remorseful, she, I mean, she, she has some degree of remorse. She feels like shit. Like she really feels like shit. She failed in her mission was, which was to bring Octavia back alive she also knows what Octavia means to Bellamy, and and I think that like Bellamy is a person who clearly she cares about to some degree. You know, like he he matters to her in some way. I think that she had a lot of respect for Octavia. Yeah, killing Octavia is clearly being set up to be a transformative thing for Echo. And that, like Echo kills people all the time, and she doesn't bother her. Like that one bothered her. You know, right, right, exactly. And it was, and they really let us linger with that. Yes, a couple of times. We lingered when Octavia died of the cliff, and then we lingered again in the jail cell when she mm-hmm. told Bellamy. Yeah. Um, and I think since we know, or, or, or it's been like heavily hinted that Echo is a character through whom Bellamy is going to process a bunch of stuff. Like, he's, like she's kind of a character through whom I think we're going to see him process some of his lingering guilt and anger from last season, you know, and, and get through the last dregs of his resistance to grounders, which is sort of like, you know, maybe sounds implausible right now, considering that she's the one who killed his sister. But also, like, that's the thing that really binds them together, you know, and her kind yeah. of like her remorse and regret for doing that. That actually, I think, ironically, really solidifies the 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 narrative connection between those two characters like they're intimately bound together now because you know through octavia's quote-unquote death and so i think there's an interesting way in which the whatever the reborn relationship between blake uh between the blake siblings is you know whatever bellamy's relationship with the new reborn 
Octavia, it will happen because Echo quote unquote killed her and because of the way that he and Echo kind of like process that, I think. Yeah. So it's just kind of like, there's like a lot, I think there's a lot of sort of like density to that. It's like very, very like short little bits of only short moments in the episode. It's not really like a big part of the plot per se, but I think there's like a lot of density and a lot of potential there for what's going to come up next. I think so too. I think the fact that we got so many really deeply kind of subtly lingering on Echo's facial expressions in a way where we are meant to see that she's working through a big thing here. You know, like before she was kind of like, you know, she was, she was Rowan's muscle. She doesn't trust Sky Crew. We understand that. She's, she's not like a, a faceless henchman, but she's also not a character whose inner life we've really been exposed to in any kind of a deep way. We know that she has this connection to Bellamy where in any circumstances she is reluctant to kill him. And that's kind of a sort of like, that's as far as she's willing to go. That's for, for Echo. It's like, she's a big old softy for him. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that like the, the number of chances that she has to murder him and doesn't, you know, it's like, that's how Echo expresses affection <laughs> by not murdering you when she has dozens of chances. <laughs> So what was interesting about that, both with the Octavia fight scene, which was just such a good fight scene. I mean, it was oh, so yeah. it was so raw and it was so messy and it was so unpolished and they were exhausted and sweaty and she had blood in her teeth and it just felt so like high stakes and real and terrifying. But watching her face when Octavia goes over the cliff and then again in that final scene in the, you know, in the jail cell, both in the, in the, there's so much happening. Like, I mean, Tossie Tellus is just so good, but there's so much happening in the silences for, you know, for Echo, where you see that sort of moment of, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, uh, you know, when, when Octavia goes down, the way that I'll kind of crash down on her. But the moments, that prison scene where the very subtle little her and Roan looking at each other and her offering, like, it was a good death is like, that's, for a grounder, that's yeah. consolation. That's the yeah. only thing that she has to give him is she gives him back Octavia's knives and she tells him it was a good death. And for grounders, that's like, for Indra, that would be enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like in a culturally, for her people, she has like she has done Bellamy a great kindness. Yeah, you yeah. know, by letting him know it was a good death and by returning Octavia's weapons, like that's huge for her. Like in in its own deeply fucked up way that is useless to Bellamy Blake. <laughs> and she says, you gonna play Sayota. Yeah. She gives Octavia grounder death rights. She gives Bellamy yeah. grounder death rights. So it's like in its own, and it means nothing. It means nothing to Bellamy. Right, right. It's but like, he fuck want you. That. Yeah, no, yeah. no. But she's like trying to honor Octavia. Yeah, for her, for her, she is giving... Octavia of the Sky People, like she's dignifying Octavia as as one of them. Yes, yes. Although interestingly, interestingly, also giving her last rites, like that's declaring the death of Grounder Octavia. Mm. Right. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh huh. Ah. Uh huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. So so I wonder. Yeah, I wonder who she's gonna be. And and also so okay. Well, so if we're gonna so so Echo saying you gonna play Sayodan you know, Octavio, the sky people saying it in trig, like saying like, yes. yeah, like, like RIP grounder Octavia. Yes. And then Octavia telling Helios, the real MVP of home. this episode. Yeah. Take me home. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. OTP Octavia and Helios. So over on science Island, we have a bunch of lady Bamps being amazing. 
that was pretty action-packed for plot-wise really just being like we need to travel five miles on foot (laughs) yeah yeah like they had it had to sort of like it had to do a little exposition work about becca about the island about some um the way the drones work about some sciencey things so there was there was sort of some basic plot mechanics there was a little bit of you know kind of again that sort of reshuffling the deck with unexpected combinations of characters that i think helped sort of move some things along a little bit and and sort of give us a reminder of like luna's core luna-ness but really mostly like 90 percent of it was they have to get to like so we know what they're where they're going, what they're doing, what all the different perspectives about why they're doing what they're doing are, and then get them into the lab for for Raven and Abby to have a major science boner over yes. you know <laughs> over Becca's Polaris lab. So like those were the things that it needed to accomplish, but also along the way, um, it was sort of an exciting little mini action movie that really seemed to be sort of all about Raven at peak Raven. Yes. Also, R.I.P. Nyko. I had no idea Ugh. that I was I would be that sad to lose Nyko, but I was so sad. I've always really liked Nyko. He's one of our last few kind of remaining traces of Lincoln's old life. Nyko and Luna are and Indra are sort of like the last people who are in the story who who represent any of the pre-Octavia, I guess, to that side of night of Lincoln, you know, and that old life that he had. And and one of the things that I've always, just through through sheer character bias, that I've always really loved about Nico, even though he's not, you know, he's never been a main character. It's he's never had like, you know, like huge storylines, but but Nico, like the the little bits of connection that we always get between Nico and Abby are so satisfying. Like they're sort of like mutual kind of professional respect for each other, you know. And like we talked about last last podcast with him, you know, he brings the sick people to Sky Crew because he has this thing as a healer, as a doctor that other um, grounders don't have, where he can see medicine and science as a useful tool and so he so having him there even though he's only there for like a minute as the person who who helps talk luna into doing this thing because he trusts sky crew and because he trusts like not just them as individuals but he trusts their technology like if abby says luna is the key to saving everybody and that presumably she says they can do this without, you know, having to kill Luna. Nyko's voice, I think, is really important in in both that Abby is trustworthy as a person and also that their technology and that their medicine really can do the things she says they can do. Because he watched her, you know, Luna wasn't there, but Nyko was when Abby basically brought Lincoln back from the dead. Before Abby the belief of all the grounders was that once you have gone reaper like you're dead to us and you are no longer the person that you were and our job is just to kill you to keep ourselves safe from you and abby was the first person to figure out that there was a way back like lincoln's the only lincoln was the first reaper that got saved and nyko was there for that and so nyko understands there are tools sky crew has that i don't quite get how they work and i don't quite get what they do you know, but I trust these people. You know, he trusts Clark, he trusts Octavia, he trusts Abby. I think he especially trusts Abby because, you know, he's he's kind of had the most, well, I guess from what we've seen, he's had the most sort of interaction with her. But he has also yeah. sort of seen her as a healer and I think he sort of like maybe identifies a little bit. Yeah, like they're peers. Her as, like they're yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Like exactly. colleagues in a, in a really lovely, interesting way. Right. And he recognizes and appreciates, like I think he looks at Abby and he thinks like, she and I have the same motives, you know, yes. like she, she does what I do, which is try to save lives. And she does it with different tools and techniques, 
But like fundamentally, we are sort of like it, we have the same values and the same goals. I think that so like he can sort of see past the details of their culture and of the kind of medicine they practice, and he recognizes, I think, maybe in her that kind of like commonality of we are people who heal human bodies and save lives. Yeah. And so I think it's really beautiful that like I love having him along for the ride for this journey as part of the sort of all all the doctors are together, you know, even if it's only just for, for the beginning of it, you know, but like all of the healers are together, Jackson and Abby and Nyko. And I love that little symmetry of the sky people grounder bridging that Michael's not just there as the person who talked Luna into this he's there because he's a doctor too him being a human shield to protect Luna from the bullets because like like his his last moments like it's so like I'm getting like really emotional but like you know Nico's the last thing that Nico did with his life was the exact right thing for the person he was to do yeah, because he see he recognized that he had to save her to save everyone else. Yeah, exactly. Know? So it was it was the healer thing to do, and it was also you know the way that we see Nico like Lincoln, like Luna, is a person who you know he's a he's a grounder who is motivated by peace and healing instead of being motivated by the sort of primal blood must have blood violence. Like we've seen, like there are people who sort of are exceptions to the rule, you know, and in- Indra evolves into that more. It takes her a little longer, I think, to shake that in some way. Which makes sense. She's a warrior instead yeah. of a healer. So there's like a certain kind of like acculturation that is maybe it, like harder to overcome. Exactly. Yeah. And it'll always, it'll always be, I think, it'll always be in her. But Nyko and Lincoln are, are, are qualitatively different, I think, in some way. And, and so him, yeah, so him sort of leaping in front of the bullets to shield Luna because he knows it's the, it's, she's their last best hope. And, and then the cut to, you know, Abby's face and like screaming at him to come back, you know, um, just that little, you know, these tiny little subtle moments, but it really, it was really moving, especially getting to really see all of them together in the, in the last storyline too, you know, just like he only, like just those, we only saw him twice this season, just, and, and it's not a huge part, you know, but I think Ty Olsen, like he's he he does so much with it you know like he has so much gravitas and warmth and he's so earnest and sincere for being a character who's only had a couple dozen lines over the course of four whole seasons it was it was really emotional it was a death that meant something you know and it felt really yes earned. yes uh, yeah no I agree I, I think it was a really not, it was a really touching death and a really meaningful death for you know for a minor re- recurring character it meant a lot yeah and it, and it also has the the effect I think sort of plot acceleration wise of isolating Luna even further among these people. Right. Like she lost the person who literally just had to convince her, like, let's keep going, you know, and then and then he gets slaughtered by like God only knows what, you know, because these people were dragging her into this into this thing that she doesn't really necessarily believe in. It did what it needed to do in terms of like it really ramps up the emotional stakes much much more than like than the red shirt who gets shot first. Right, right. <laughs> It reminds us like we're in a really dangerous place we don't understand. It immediately transitions into, you know, if Clark shut down the City of Light and Allie's gone, how the hell are these drones still working? It sort of opens up some, like, there are terrifying mysteries on this island kind of thing. So it really sets right away. It it ramps up the action stakes in a huge way. Yes, yes. It sort of introduces a new mystery. Like, there's stuff going on here that we don't know about yet there's like sort of forces in play in of some form or another that the characters aren't aware of cognizant of they don't understand that you know aren't aren't necessarily 
friendly. And I think there was also that little tiny moment, you know, when um, when Raven went to reprogram the drone after they finally got it, she sort of like pauses, you know, she kind of like shakes her head and like puts her hand to her face. And, and there was like a little like, I think if you listen to the music in the background there, there's a little kind of like, dun dun, you know, like there's uh-huh, a kind of uh-huh. like little like musical cue back there. So I think, I suspect that that is setting up something. There's like something about the like systems that are running the island that is related to Becca and Allie that is that's going to like maybe affect Raven because yeah. she's still because she got like the Allie yeah, like she's got the Allie upgrade she's got like something in her left over from Allie and so I'm really curious to see how what happens there you know it seems to be setting up like being like the physical being on this island interacting with this technology interacting with this stuff is going to have an effect on Raven that it doesn't have on other people and that's like a really fascinating yeah kind of, uh, development. Yeah, in in a way that's that's more than just she's here because this is where the technology is, and so she had to be. You know, she it's yeah. a, it's it's specifically about it's not it's not just because she's a person who's good with machinery, and because Allie put knowledge into her brain. We get this sort of two pronged little hint of like sort of like like the ghost of Allie still kind of fucking with yeah. them. Yeah, you know, well, like something like it's not just like she has knowledge. It's not like she just acquired knowledge, but like something in her brain changed you in know? her. Like, yeah, yeah, like she was re she was reprogrammed maybe in some way and that and that she might that reprogramming in her brain might interact with other kinds of Ali or Becca programming in ways that we can't yet predict yeah which I which I'm really which I'm really interested in it was such a good episode for for Raven such a good episode for Lindsay Morgan and both both just purely in terms of what actually happened and in terms of of all of the sort of myriad possibilities of what they're setting up what i really like i mean i like like all of it but i i liked it you know again it was a cool setup to both remind us that despite how badass she is her physical limitations have an inescapable cost yeah in that in that little moment which i just i i which i for many reasons i loved um it's really fun watching miller take control you know like yes was, oh my god really that fun was amazing watching miller like like you go here you go here you go here yes i was like fist pumping Me i was too. like yes. oh my I'm god like, yeah. yes yeah like it felt so earned watching yes. him that he's there in that position everyone is there to do a job and this is miller's job yeah and then you know and then him you know shooting the drones out of the sky and protecting jackson um you know jackson trying to sort of like talk miller through how to like uh, like operate on himself you know he's like <laughs> he's like compressing jackson's wound with one hand and firing right. like it was, you know there was no ton of miller but all the miller was a plus no it was just like he was just like got to be a badass the yes i time, loved basically. it it was great <laughs> There was that little sort of moment of hesitation where it's like, okay, so you three run this way. I'm going to go this way with Jackson. You two go this way. we got to split up. And then Raven, and then he kind of stops. And she's like, yeah, fuck you. Like, I know. She's like, I like the beach. I know I'm going to stay here. You yeah, know, like, yeah. I'm I'm going to try to sort of frame this like I have some kind of agency, but we all know yeah. it's because I can't run, you know? Yeah. And yeah. Um, and so so opening it up with that sort of moment of reminding us that she has this sort of superhuman, supercharged genius brain. She also still has a really complicated relationship with the workings of her own body and yes. everyone else. And her and her guilt that everyone else has to like accommodate that. Yes, yes. And that, that that's like an issue that informs and shapes her whole life, who she is, her relationships with other people, you know, like what happens to her. That it's not just like a sort of incidental, like she wears a leg brace to sort of like narratively right. track that this thing exists, but it doesn't shape what happens to her or the way that she reacts to things. It's like fully a part of her character in a way that sort of like motivates 
the story, which I think is really, really, like, I mean, like, that's the thing that's really, like, you know, in terms of representation of disability, like, this is a story that is shaped in which an entire character and what happens to her and what happens around her in her relationships is sort of shaped and formed by that fact. And it, and not in a negative way, not in a way that's like, she has limitations, but not in the sort of like, but that, but she, it just means that she has to figure out other ways to do things, you know? So I think it's like, yeah. it's empowering despite, you know, the fact that she has to, that it, that it's also frustrating for her. Right. Like it, it really lets us live in how it feels to be Raven sort of benched on the big adventure. And like, even before she's benched, the like little reminders when somebody says, you know, are you going to be able, like when Abby says it's five miles and they say, are you going to be able to handle that? You know, there's like little tiny, like micro yeah, reminders. Yeah, Jackson helping her out of the boat. Yeah. And like, and then they, people are trying to help but it's just like that constant reminder like hey you aren't able like fully able-bodied like us and the way that those relentless little reminders kind of like wear on her yeah her mentally and her mood on on her on her like levels of frustration I think is really really nice yeah it's handled in a really realistic way you know like I I I think it's one of those things where until you you've sort of lived in a body with physical limitations or you sort of witness in an up close and personal way someone else doing that like you you don't think about the ways that the world is set up to accommodate able-bodied people yeah you know, like for me it's like until my mom was sick enough that she was in a wheelchair I had no idea how hard it is to exist in this world in a wheelchair yeah like I did it like on, a, on an abstract level but like in a way that was really informed by like my own like able-bodied privilege you know until it's you until you're like we're gonna go see a play at the theater where I work but there's only two handicapped parking spaces and they're both taken so I have to like wheel you like up this hill and around the block to get into the one doorway that doesn't have stairs because the building has no elevator you know and like li- little things like that yeah where you yeah just, in a year ago I wouldn't have thought of it and now you're just like well fuck this is ridiculous yeah, you know yeah so I think that like just that sort of little reminder that there are things that are that are effortless to the point they don't even think about it for everybody else in that story except for Raven yeah and of course it's Jackson who's like well because he's kind and because he's a doctor that he's like he's helping her out of the boat he's kind of like watching like is she okay are you okay like he's kind of still a little bit in like checking in with Raven sort of doctor you know mode but that's why I think it really it um it means something when we see Murphy do it. Like, it yeah. means something real when Murphy puts his arm around her waist and is helping her run because they don't have that kind of a relationship. And that also says something about his shifting awareness. Perhaps, I think, I think because... Because of Amori. I was going to say because of Amori. Yeah. But I wonder if there's a link between the moment when Amori hesitates at the threshold, the border... And yeah. says, you know, like, I can't remember the trig word, but, you know, like, the word for, for people with mutations. We're not, we can't come in there. I think he sort of forgets in that, you know, like, he, he doesn't think about that as a limitation. And she's so very aware of it, you know, of, like, where yeah. she is and isn't allowed to be in the world. So he has to sort of pause and, and realize that this isn't a, you know, that, that she's having this kind of, like, experience and sort of reach out his hand and take her through. So I wonder if that wasn't on some that wasn't the pivotal moment you know when he sort of like it was like that reminder you know and then and then when raven is unable to move as quickly as she needs to then then maybe on some level that's what prompts him to sort of pause and turn and and take her yeah and it really felt like it was a very sort of subtle deft little way of i think drawing a line between emory and raven as people who exist in the world with things that make 
life harder for them, both in terms of the practical things that they can do and the way that they are treated. Yeah. In a way that I just love. I love the idea of maybe the two of them building towards having like a, like they haven't interacted much. They're sort of on the squad together, but they weren't like together together. Yeah. I would love to see them interact. Like there's like so much there for them to sort of like connect over, I think. Yeah, because because Amori is also kind of has has a little bit of hard eyes over Becca's lab. You know, like she's she's yeah. also has her own relationship with um with Allie's tech with the like she, you know, she understands it more than I think a lot of the other grounders do. But I also do think that I really felt those kind of subtle little parallels of the two altered ability characters having moments on this island where the island makes them feel the difference between them and everybody else in a way that the everybody else can't feel it it's really lovely that it's murphy for both of them who is that person but i also think that what i love about that sort of raven butting up head first against her own physical limitations is that the way the story makes it not about like it sucks to be raven because raven can't run it it's the lens into her getting to do this thing that only, like, only only Raven could have been the person to reprogram that drone, and she only could have done it if she was benched on the beach while everybody else was running through the woods. And so she saves Abby's life. Like they're screwed without Abby, you know, they're screwed without Raven. And and so Raven, being who she is, which is a person who is physically, you know, has a disability, means that she's in the right place at the right time, both to bring back Luna and to save Abby's life. And Jackson's life, because then Abby and Jackson. saved Jackson. I mean, like, she literally saves everyone. <laughs> yeah. Again, as Raven always does. <laughs> yeah. And and I like that. Um, what I think this show is doing that's, with it that's really cool is that Raven, and th- this, is, this is where it becomes, like, this sort of vital, the way that you thread this needle with the representation conversation is very important, because Raven does not save everybody's life in spite of having a disability. Yes. She saves everyone's life because of the disability that she has, specifically because of it. So it's not like, okay, well, you're disabled, but you're still like, look at you go. What a champion. (laughs) Overcoming adversity. It isn't demeaning in the way that we sometimes culturally, in trying to be too encouraging and supportive of people who have disabilities, it becomes kind of infantilizing. Yeah, or he's like, look at you. You are a symbol of inspiration for those of us who, you know. Yeah, for, for being a broken, fucked up person who can still do things. Hooray. Right, right. Where you like, maybe you have good intentions, but what you're doing is actually really destructive because what you're reinforcing is that like, I'm surprised you can do anything. Like that's basically the sort of underlying message, you know, like you're an exception to the rule because you are a broken, damaged person who can do stuff three cheers, which is a horrible (laughs) message. Right. But that's sometimes that's the undercurrent. Of, I think, the way, particularly on television, characters who are people with disabilities are often treated. So what's great about this is the way that it just completely obliterates that messaging where, like, Raven has to be disabled in the particular way that she is disabled, where she cannot run and she's trapped in one place for her to accomplish the thing that she then accomplishes later that only she could do which is which is two-prong which is one being the person who can speaking through her own pain get through to luna yes yes luna 
recognizing like honest bitch to honest bitch what are we doing here i think that scene is beautiful and so important um and raven is the person who could get through to luna because luna saw what she just did you know and luna and so then them teaming up where like luna can't reprogram a drone but luna can fucking run exactly you know and and so it links the two of them together in a way where like they they accomplish something together luna's on the team now like luna Luna took action. Luna had agency and yeah. she did a thing. Well, and, and and Raven, you know, Raven I think is is someone who previously would have wanted to do everything herself, you know, and now and she's learning She she's she's learning to ask for help. I don't even think like I wouldn't even categorize that as like um learning to ask for help. I think she's just learning to cooperate, you know. She's learning yeah. that instead of trying to fix the problem entirely herself and being frustrated that she can't She's simply like, what are my resources? My resources include other people, which is like awesome. And so, and so, like you said, like she sort of like has this partnership. Um, you know, there's a person who can do a thing that she can't and she can do a thing that that person can't. Uh, but also just, you know, being able to sort of like, like Raven isn't a character who necessarily in the past motivated through like emotional connection or through like vulnerability. And, and so it was like a really, really great scene to see her open up to somebody that she doesn't really know, you know, like she, she, that she has spent very little time with other than basically on this boat and to be able to look at her and recognize where Luna's pain was coming from, where her sort of like anger and despair was coming from and be able to identify the thing that would, that would resonate with Luna. That's a new skill, I think, for Raven. And it, I mean, it makes sense that she has it. I think it's just one of those things like she hasn't really used that much necessarily. Yeah, and it's also one of those things that, again, it's specifically because of her disability, because of the pain and the things that she's been through that give her, that give her credibility with Luna, where Luna listens to her like, this is a person who understands what she's talking about. Yes, exactly. Like, it's because she can say like, look, like, I know that it hurts. You know, like, I know how much it hurts and I know how much you're suffering and I know where this, these feelings are coming from for you. And, and it's clearly genuine and true. That sincerity is what makes it possible for her to persuade, um, Luna, you know, cause I think like Luna, Luna at the beginning of the episode with Nyko really, she, she distrusts their sincerity. Like she doesn't believe that they're coming from like a real, like they're, they're sort of like, altruistic motives are necessarily true and I think like Raven's the one who's able to, to bear herself a little bit and show like no like I'm in earnest when we say what our goals are those that's actually it I'm doing this because I'm thinking about all those children out there in the world that don't deserve to die this horrible death yeah which I think is particularly you know I think that moment I think the fact that it's Adria that she uses that that's the argument that she uses and that's what persuades Luna I think given what happened in the last episode yeah. when, you know, when Adria was an abstraction to Raven, Raven was like, no, no medicine. We can't spare it. We can't afford it. No, right. no, no, no. But she watched no. that scene and she watched, you know, Luna's what Luna went through and the little girl died. And she, you know, she like saw the connections among Nyko and Luna and the little girl. And, you know, so she's able to put the human face 
on that loss and and sort of understand that and and make that a part of sort of like mission that she understands herself to be a part of. She still has to make the same sets of impossibly difficult decisions that she had to make two episodes ago when she was basically like, we have to do whatever is the thing that's going to help us save the most people, even if that thing feels kind of ruthless. And she's she's still making that same set of choices. But I think that I think that we're seeing her having been changed by witnessing, you know, the thing that was hard for her to wrap her head around when it happened to Bellamy about like, when it's a person who's in front of you, it changes the conversation, you know, and I think the fact that she brings up Adria, the fact that she brings up to Luna, you know, you, you, like, you can... You can be on your high horse all you want to about like the hypocrisy of the things that we're doing, but also now it's now it's Raven's turn to tell somebody else, fine, do that, but you're condemning children to die. Yeah. Now she's kind of saying to Luna what Abby said to her, if that's what you're going to do, you do you, Luna. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to put my gun down. I'm not going to shoot you. Get on the boat and sail away and leave us stranded here if you want to and leave us with like no hope, but also acknowledge in so doing that the consequences of that are that there are other children like Adria who we have a chance to save and that's what we're trying to do here and if you opt out it's on you so i i like i like that reversal while also it you know raven raven is still fully consistent with raven's worldview but it's shifted from having seen up close the thing that she had sort of heretofore been able to avoid having to kind of see up close. And I and I think, you know, just in her being who she is, it's like now she's made it possible for Luna to have built trust with at least one person in that group. And I think that that's something that's going to become really key in, in, you know, whatever crazy shit ends up going down in, in the lab in the next few episodes, which I'm just so, oh my God, I'm so excited. The lab is pretty... Badass. The lab is amazing. I really like Becca must have some like fucking turbo Roombas in that place to keep it oh that like God. spick and span and perfectly clean and shiny for however many years, like 90 years or whatever. <laughs> so here's my question. So, so I guess sort of maybe transitioning a little bit into sort of like what's coming up next and some of the sort of the world building I think we got, the kind of table setting for the future of, of this plot. So Becca can't possibly have built that lab post-apocalypse, right? Like she, she landed and she must yeah. have found an existing, like that must have been a place that was part of, was, was Polaris like the name of her company? I think so, yeah. So so my feeling is she must have when she dropped her little pod when she first came down in the in that flashback that we saw, that at some point, um, you know, like she had she had the nightblood serum that she came down there with. And then at some point she must have navigated her way back to like, okay, I remember that like here in this part of the country, like our, you know, like either that was her lab before or that, or it was a lab that belonged to her company, you know, before. And then she sort of repurposed it for her own purposes, um, to like to do her stuff. That equipment must have already been there. She couldn't have like, you know, it's not like janky grounder tech. She didn't build it from scrap. It was there all along. Right. But then that gets into some really interesting, the, the Becca Allie overlap then becomes an interesting question because if Allie, like if, if, if Allie one was, protecting that island from from like invaders with drones then at what point did Ali 1 find Becca 
but didn't know about Allie Dooley. So I just, like, it's like, yeah. that was Becca's lab where Becca was working, but now clearly it's under Allie control. You know, I wonder, this is why I just, I, I keep thinking in my heart of hearts, I believe that we're going to get post-apocalypse flashbacks with like Becca, Allie, Bill Cadigan. I was going to say, unless that lab was somehow connected to Bill Cadigan. Yeah, I I mean it, it looks it looks so I mean like not not that, he, not that he he did it by himself and, and Becca was never connected to it, but rather that may unless there was like some there's some connection with them either before she went to space uh-huh. or she came back down and he was I mean like I feel I just feel like yeah. I feel like Bill Cadigan is somewhere you know there's like the ghost of Bill Cadigan is on that island. I think that's a really likely possibility because, you know, I was I was thinking as we talked last episode about um, the sort of the mythical, like, is there a 13th bunker and is Jaha going to go kind of hunting for it? Um, and so I think the fact that Jaha is connected to Cadigan and Jaha is connected to Ali slash Becca adds some additional credence to the idea that, that Cadigan is connected to Becca somehow. But I was thinking about... The motto, the from the ashes we will rise. And I was thinking, okay, so like what if if the 13th bunker wasn't a bunker, but he was on some like Elon Musk kind of crazy quest to like build himself like a private spacecraft or something, (laughs) you know, and that and that from the ashes we will rise is some like unbelievably like secretly dickish like (laughs) admission that he's planning on like locking them in some shitty ass unsecured bunker and he's gonna build himself a private either either a spaceship to like go live in space or at least blast off wait out the radiation and then come back and that that's what the slogan means then that could really easily be the thing that is how he became connected to becca who had the technology yeah 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 and she had a space station. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that she and that and that they talked about. I forget. I forget where or how this came up. If it was in, if it was in the Becca flashbacks or where it was. But I, but I feel like I, um, the idea that there were people who survived who were living in bunkers and people who survived because they were like. There were like a couple of rockets that took off before the bombs hit. You know, that's not the arc. That's like separate from like this from the main oh, space think, station. I think um, either Jason or one of the writers said that at some point. They're like, oh, okay, grounders. Like there were there were there were there are a lot of grounders who are sort of like the descendants of doomsday prepper uh, people who rode out that first storm on that, and then. They also said that, like, I think somebody at some point on on Twitter or something somewhere asked if there were, if anybody escaped. And he said, like, there were a couple of, you know, there were a couple, like, shuttles that made it into space right before. But but that was it. I couldn't remember how I had that in my brain, but I knew, like, somewhere in my brain was the idea that not a whole space station's worth, but, like, a handful of clusters of people. And so if Cadigan was one of those people and that he somehow either was responsible for Allie being, like, quote-unquote, like, set free, which never sort of specified how. Got loose or whatever they said, yeah. Yeah, like, got, yeah, like, they said, like, like Allie got loose. It's, like, kind of all that they, um... I was talking. I was talking about this the other day with Brittany and Sam, and Brittany went back and like checked all of the script, you know, transcripts. Like, what do they actually say? And all he ever tells Becca is like, "Allie got free," you know. Yes. And yeah, which is like very, very like sort of sneakily in the passive voice. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And um. And also, and and sort of also a cool little. 
you 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 accept that and move on and then don't question it and you don't go back yeah. and ask yourself that question because the alley that we meet is so all powerful that you're like I believe she could have just sort of done it herself. But it, but it's kind of like how at the beginning of the show, you know, they tell you, okay, 97 years ago, the world blew up. And you're like, okay, I accept that as world building. I'm moving forward with that. And I never asked myself until they introduced, you know, Allie as a singularity, how or why that happened. And so then all of a sudden, when you're getting the sort of the story of how that happened and what caused it and Allie being responsible and why, then you're sort of like, oh, it's this thing that was like right in front of you all along. And the sort of sleight of hand directs you to not ask that question. You sort of accept it as you're like, all right, so the framework of this story is that 100 years ago, this happened. Okay. And um, and so that's so why I, I part of me sort of wondered is, you know, is this a similar kind of thing where what's laid in front of us is Allie got loose and then the story just moves forward from there and you're kind of like, all right, all right. And then you don't sort of ask yourself, how did Allie get loose? Like under what circumstances could that have happened? And so if either he knew it was happening, if he somehow facilitated it happening, if he just sort of like knew that they were having problems, and you know, like I, I just, I... I, I'm really into the idea that from the beginning, this entire cult second dawn, you know, thing was straight up a money making scheme for him to get the money that he needed to build himself some like <laughs> luxury zillionaire rocket to protect himself and his inner circle posse from this apocalypse that he knows is coming. And he literally, you know, and he like L. Ron Hubbard did it with the built religion <laughs> around his own self-interest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What we learned from the island about the fact that there at some point has to have been overlap between Ali One and Becca in order for it to be narratively possible that Becca's drones, like that that evil Becca's drones are on the island where, you know, good guy Becca was trying to save everybody. So how did that crossover happen? Although, you know, the other thing that occurred to me is that if those drones were programmed to protect her from Cadigan. Oh, they're Becca's drones and they assume that they're Allie's drones. Yeah, but they might be Becca's. I mean, it's possible. We don't actually know that they're Allie's. So if if Becca was in that lab trying to make Nightblood to inoculate the population, I don't know how it would have, like, I feel like you're right, like the lab... It would be implausible that she built that lab after she came down, but I mean, who knows, whatever. Uh, maybe, maybe it's just, right. just like magically that great. Uh, but but the other possibility is that the drones, she programmed the drones to protect her from intruders, which I would imagine maybe would, might be connected to Cadian. In which case, it's interesting that Amori says that specifically that people with mutations are barred from entering because it makes you wonder right. like, okay, but why? Like, why is why specifically them? And it does seem like the drones that are sort of like people, unauthorized people, they don't really distinguish, but it makes yeah, me, yeah. it makes me wonder if Cadigan has some kind of backstory related to that aspect of grounder culture. And also then then what or who is the thing that lives on the island that Amori is more scared of than she is? Yeah, scared of that's drones. true. That's true. So like what I wonder because because the idea of no mutants, nobody with any kind of a mutation, no one with any kind of, I guess for lack of a better word, impurity 
feels like the kind of mindset that's consistent with the belief system of a cult leader like Cadigan yeah. was. And and not really and not really Becca. Yeah, like where you have you have these thirteen levels you have that you have to earn through some kind of devotion to him, you know, so he's surrounding himself with everyone who has sort of climbed their way up through the ranks of Second Dawn to become his preferred yeah. people. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. So that maybe, maybe Cadigan, like, took over the lab at some point. Yeah. And this is, like, his, this is his, yeah, interesting. I have no way of knowing it. Like, this is just, this is just a vibe that I got where I just, like, in my heart of hearts, I feel like Bill Cadigan murdered Becca. <laughs> yeah, no, me too. I, yeah. And it, and it's based on nothing except just that I am immediately like you are a shady motherfucker, yeah. Bill <laughs> and I want to know more about you immediately. Um, but the idea that he, as a person who who lived in the world and understood technology, in you know, in some way, even if he I don't know himself was a scientist, but that he that he knew something about this stuff, and maybe he either befriended Becca, learned how her stuff worked, and then killed her. I don't know. But I just wonder: is there, you know, is there a, a tribe or a group of grounders or a community of some kind that lives on this island who who Amori knows about because she's had to like dodge them in collecting tech before? That are people who are like descended in some way from Cadigan's followers. Yeah, so there's like a community there that maybe are living with with more technology than most grounders are yeah like i don't know but i it seems to me that the the idea that you are not that that no one who is like tainted by radiation can come across that line could it gets it could either be a cadigan like ethnic cleansing creepy ass cult leader purity thing or it could end up being becca I mean, I guess I could see potentially a way where Becca draws the lines that she draws to keep people who have unusually high levels of radiation in their system from changing her experiments. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, maybe maybe Becca made her own, like, list, you know? There might be, like, Becca, like, Clark parallels that on that that kind of level where you have to, like, choose who are the fittest subjects. And, oh, and and that would, well, so that is an interesting little echo to the fact that the information we get specifically about the Harper thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The idea of of reinforcing that Clark went into people's medical records, that she assessed like genetic predisposition to certain negative things, and that even though Harper is young and, you know, fertile and hardy enough that she certainly could have children if she wanted to have children, like, reminding us that it's because, you know, like, it, it, it has to be plot relevant that Harper got omitted because of a genetic predisposition to an illness she doesn't have yet. And maybe yeah. the reason's because Harper is going to get that illness, but I think it's actually much more likely that it's to give us a Clark digging into people's medical history, which is both invasive yes. and also a a sign that genetics in some way is a running thread, I think, I guess, in this. In some yeah, way. Or, and, and not just genetics, but even like some kind of form of eugenics. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know that 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 like there's there's a kind of like s- distinctions or distinguishing among people on the basis of how quote unquote good or pure their genes are, and trying to select for the best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, in a way that has nothing to do with who you are, because Harper is super competent. She's very strong. She's totally healthy right now. She's a great right. shot. 
Harper on her own merits brings a lot to the table, but Harper has been filtered out in the same way that Amori does. But Harper has been filtered out because of a thing that she couldn't control that is purely yeah. genetic and has nothing to do with Harper. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Claire. Claire, I just hit, but like that also ties into Raven's line this week. It's not about what your blood, it's about your heart. Yes. I was just going to say, we're getting the reverse of this with Luna. Where yeah. Like, like, like who Luna is, is like, like they, they, they're selecting for Luna and they're selecting against Harper yeah. for reasons that have nothing to do with them as people. That is purely like a scientific calculation based on your genetics has been assessed that Luna has extraordinary value and Harper has no value. Yeah. And this is really fascinating because I feel like this is another instance of a running theme that I think has been happening throughout the show, which I like, I actually don't think that I've really seen talked about anywhere. And like, I think I brought it up a little bit when they're in our interview with, with Jason, but I think it's really fascinating. Like this idea of the human body, like the biological human body as, as being a technocratic problem, like the management right. and maintenance of biological human life as a sort of matter of calculation in terms of like, in the first season, oxygen intake. Right. You know, in the second season, blood, like the, the grounder blood, like grounder bodies becoming sort of like repositories of medical resources that have to be used by Mount Weather. Yeah, and the sky people becoming more valuable because their blood is stronger. Exactly. And so and so how the the navigation that Cage and Dr. Singh go through to get Dante over his ethical hangups because he likes these kids, but the but the argument that it's more strategically beneficial to kill them and take their bone marrow because he hasn't dehumanized them by like labeling them savages the way that he did with, you know, like the savage sort of like label on on the grounders in season 2 is what made it possible for Dante and the rest of the people in Mount Weather to dehumanize the grounders so that they could see them as a sort of like a medical resource rather than as so they, they could see them as biological human entities rather than as people so like not just human yeah. bodies but as like people having like moral worth yeah like Echo and Monty are qualitatively different to Dante Wallace exactly exactly and then in season three Ali the Ali story is another version of the same kind of questions because what the Ali story like I think at heart when you when you think about like Ali thematically what Ali was always saying is that your body is expendable your life your identity your humanity is in your consciousness which can be disconnected from your human from your biological body entirely and put into a computer. And, and that like the essence of humanity of being is in that version of consciousness that can be preserved as data and is entirely separable from the fact that you exist in the world as a biological entity. Like Ali is like the Cartesian horror story, you know, like the Descartes sort of like think therefore I am idea that like identity is sort of imminent or, or is sort of like separated from the mechanical body. Yeah, and that she sort of views, she views as kind of antiquated and primal the human desire to hold on to human life. She's like, no, 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 guys, I have a way better plan. Bodies for her are either expendable or they are tools to leverage, to use in order to coerce other bodies. So she has Raven use her own body, slice her own wrists, you know, threaten her, her sort of body's life in order to coerce Abby to take the chip. So she sees by, like, that. Like, that's the horror of Allie, is that she has absolutely no, like, there's, like, the complete bifurcation 
of value between um, humanity as sort of like this this imaginary like humanity as the mind, the spirit, whatever, versus the body as being a kind of like um, any part of your actual humanity. And then this season, if we if we do wind up having this with the list and so forth, that's another version of it in which you're sort of like have the complicated moral situation in which once again human bodies are basically a political problem. You have bodies that require resources and resources that require management. And in order to keep the human race going, which basically means in order to keep the organism that is a human being, human species reproducing and going, you have to sort of like, there's this notion that like, okay, we have to manage, we have to choose, we have to manipulate, we have to choose people based on what their bodies are capable of, both like in, you know, with the, in, in terms of like the work that they can do in the world, but also capable of sort of genetically, in order, you know, and divorced entirely from, like you were saying, who they are. So it's like body, identity as body, identity as genetics, being sort of separated out from identity as like being a person in the sense where we think of, of personhood as having some sort of greater moral value in the world that isn't reducible to your genetic material. Yeah, and that we're really drawing, I think, some really clear lines among all the different characters of who are the people who who have the capacity to step back and make those assessments as leaders and who are the people who cannot separate the human person from the physical body. You well, know? I and think there's also a complicated set of, of moral questions there as to whether like, okay, sometimes you do need to draw that line, but there is a point at which when you draw that line, you cross into amorality in like a really horrific way. So how, how do you negotiate a situation in which you do need to draw that distinction? How do you not lose yourself on one side or other of the line? Right. Well, and that's, and I think that that's where we're watching all of the different, both the things that have already happened and the sort of the table setting for a future choices, particularly with this, with the Luna and the Nightblood storyline, but with, you know, with Arcadia too, where who, who are the people who, who have the, that capacity to make those decisions when they have to be made? Um, and who are the people who, who stand in the way of that because they can't sort of get that distance? You know, like where yeah. I'm, what I'm really interested in is where the Luna storyline, where the sort of how do we do this Nightblood thing, where does Abby end up landing with that? You know, because like what what we've seen up until this point is that Abby and then also Bellamy and some of the other characters are are squarely and consistently always on the side of who is a person in front of me who needs saving today? And like, right. I will save tomorrow's problems for tomorrow if a person in front of me is in need of, of care. Which is a version or, of like, they look at a person and they see like that individual person and that worth, right. that, that moral value of personhood that is not reducible to their like bio, like the, the, the like challenges they, they, they present uh, biologically. Right. Where I'm curious about what happens next with Abby is that, you know, we, the, the little, the little kind of ominous little creepy line that we get in the trailer where she tells Raven in that lab that we now know is Becca's lab where they've gone to make Nightblood. When she says like, first we survive, then we find our humanity again. Yeah. So what that sort of seems to indicate is Abby's made a choice that Raven feels like is dehumanizing. So yeah. what I'm wondering is if Luna has to die for them to do the things that they have to do. I I mean, I, I can't, I absolutely cannot see Abby killing anybody in cold blood, but I can see Abby 
putting it to Luna and hoping that Luna will agree to be sacrificed and then being sort of, what the fuck do we do now if Luna says, uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> because, <laughs> because Luna being who Luna is, Luna is not a person who believes the ends justify the means. No. Like, that's yeah. her whole, that's her whole MO. And so I think it isn't a coincidence that it's the character who represents that mindset who's going to say, like, no, the way that you do things matters and the people that you are in the wake of these decisions matters. And so that sort of juxtaposed with the fact that she's the only nightblood that they have, juxtaposed with the fact that we're only at episode four, and so there's still plenty of ways things have time to go terribly awry. <laughs> you know, like, it's way too early for an easy solution to be found yet. But also because the Abby that they've been sort of reinforcing, like, at her heart, like, we talked about this before, like, the way this season has really clarified the best, clearest, most themselves versions of themselves for so many of these characters. You know, after I think some messiness, I think with Abby's storyline, at least to the first half of last season, Abby is back at like, she's full on, you know, Dr. Superhero Abby. And the, and the way that we saw her respond with the, you know, with the dying grounders in the last episode was really sort of a reminder that she's a person who is always going to make that make that choice and so I wonder like so I'm interested in putting Abby in the position of the impossible choice of either harm cause harm to or take the life of a person right in front of you to save everybody else and there isn't a section second option what does she do and I'm I'm really like I'm I'm very I'm, just, I'm kind of like squicked out by the notion of putting Abby in the position to be Lorelai Singh like I I don't that's not a parallel that I want. <laughs> but it feels like the direction that this story is going is going to be pushing somebody, pushing some person or some group of them into a position where we're, we're you know, the way they've been paralleling the culling and paralleling season one coming down, we're headed towards a parallel with Mount Weather in really, yeah. really, really stark and clear terms and so how did they flip that on its head the way they flipped the culling parallel on its head the way they flipped the hunter parallel on its head what's the reimagining or the inversion of the mount weather harvesting blood from grounders which is literally what they're planning on doing to luna what's the what's the sort of um the flip of that and is the flip of it consent yeah yeah is it that that they find a way to work with luna and persuade her that this is because luna doesn't really feel i mean like she's going along with it but but it hasn't cost her personally anything yet so the difference between abby killing luna and harvesting her bone marrow which abby would never do versus abby sitting down with somebody and holding their hand and saying there is no hope for your people except that you have to die so we can take your bone marrow and do this thing with it but i will not do it unless you say yes but i'm begging you to say yes like that's yeah, an abby thing to that's do that's an abby thing to do yeah yeah and that would be kind of like threading that needle and and like finding the kind of like third way yeah, yeah, the Griffin thing, the finding, like, what's the, like, J like Jason said, like, where Clark is, like, shitty option A, shitty option B, I will make up an option C that didn't <laughs> exist before. Right, exactly. You know, which she gets from her mom, you know. So I'm nervous because you got to be really, really careful with how to play a eugenics storyline in the hands of 
the characters who are our protagonist POV characters in a way that doesn't push them to a place where we are no longer capable of understanding their points of view. No, definitely. Like it's, it's a very, very, very tricky. And also like given the history of eugenics and its connections with issues of colonialism and race, I think you also have to be like yeah. really, really, really careful, you know, and, and then given the sort of like the way the sky people in some ways as we've talked about before, in some ways in the narrative throughout over the course of the seasons have sort of like mirrored kind of like more Western European positions um, or points of view, um, especially with Mount Weather, which was like very, very clearly meant to be a stand in. Yeah, you know, yeah, for yeah, kind yeah. of like westernized, especially with the way that they use the term savage to dehumanize, specifically to dehumanize the grounders. You know, you have to be very, very careful about how you have our point of view characters start to like, if they're talking about sort of like issues of eugenics, like that's, that's a tricky needle to thread. Yeah. And I was thinking, so like, I can't remember, you watched the episode today and I rewatched it yesterday, so you might remember. There was a line when Kane was talking to Roan, um, where Kane said something about science versus not superstition but it comes after roan tells him you have a secret night blood I, like if i didn't know that the that the flame was destroyed i would think that you're planning an ascension and then kane's like oh fuck no no no, no you've got the totally wrong idea you know <laughs> um and he and he says no like we figured out a way like we think that we can turn everybody into night bloods and that's what's going to save everyone and then echo says that's blasphemy and he says, no, it's not blasphemy. It's science. Yeah. And you talked about this the other day. Yeah, that this would be a problem we talking for, about for Gaia. Gaia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so I mean, yeah, so it makes sense in that world. I mean, I think that's that might be like the sort of setup for eventually Gaia, especially Gaia because she is the kind of like the flame keeper, um, having, struggling with that potential solution because it is a challenge to her beliefs. But it was just like, it struck me in the moment where we're on the subject of talking about like, you know, tricky, tricky things to sort of navigate in terms of um, issues, like historical issues of like colonialism and race. When he said that, you know, it's not blasphemy, it's science. That was one of those moments where it was very much like, like that distinction that there's a kind of like point of view character who understands that this thing that they're talking about doing is is science, is knowledge, is technology. And there's this other group of people who are like, if you take my picture, you capture my soul kind of like fallacy. You know, right, like, right. like like what are you talking about? That's blasphemy. Like there's another one of those moments where it's like it's edging very, very close to a set of sort of like arch colonialist arch narratives that have mapped on to sort of sky people versus grounders before that was made me a little bit sort of uncomfortable. You know, it was like one of those moments where I was like, okay, I'm, you know, like that, like one moment like that is not too big a deal, but I'm just like, it makes me, makes me, I I, like, like this, that storyline will have to have to be handled with care, I think. It is, yeah. It's something that it's just like, um, I'm not mad at it yet. I'm I'm side-eyeing it a little bit. Like I'm feeling cautious. It makes a difference, I think, in that scene that Marcus Kane is a person of color and Roan is yes. not a person of color. It would feel immediately worse if it was like a white person telling that to a person, like a grounder played by a person of color. Right. If like, you'd if be like, like Clark were yelling Ooh. that at, at, at Indra or something, it would be. Yeah. You'd way be worse. like, oh man, oh <laughs> man, you guys. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. But like macro narrative wise, I agree with you. Like it's it's a the the overall narrative of 
the grounders and the overall narrative of the sky people it does sometimes kind of orbit a little bit around these things and and that eugenics is just such a it can't be separated from those those historical facts of colonialism and racism or or and it can't be separated from the cultural narratives that made colonialism and and those issues like possible you know yeah like it you you only you only can experiment on a human body like it's a science tool once you've talked yourself out of believing it's a human body, which is why, for the most part, like, which is why, like, you know, when, when, when hospitals, when you're training, you know, medical students, you use cadavers because they're dead, so you can do whatever they want. But, them. like, also, it means it makes a difference, too. Like, cadavers are, like, supposed to be, have been voluntarily submitted bodies. Yeah, you sign you the thing. You know, so like that's the difference between a cadaver, you know, in a hospital and somebody like cutting up a body in their house, even if they're, you know, like that's the difference between like desecration of a dead body and like the thing you learn on to be a doctor. It has to do with consent. So there we go back to consent. Right. It's a cadaver because someone consented versus like there was that, you know, that that like bodies exhibit from... Um, that went around like 10 years ago or something like that, where it was like a bunch of oh, uh-huh. like, human bodies, which I would like, I went into, I saw a little bit of it. It was too disturbing for me. But like, I remember there was a big scandal because there was not actually like most of the bodies were were Chinese people. And it was not, a, it was not clear that the artist had gotten permission, proper permission mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. from all the people whose bodies he was displaying. Yeah. You know, and like, it's a similar thing there where it's like meant to be, it's like science. Like, look at this. You're like looking at the the fibers of the body. You're like seeing the body and, you know, like you have access to this knowledge, but that access to knowledge is really complicated by the fact that you're also like taking a human body that was a person and sort of reducing it to its biological components and looking at it as an, as an object. You know, there's like something, there's a, there's a trans, like imaginary and moral transformation that has to happen in order to make that possible. This is where it gets so gray is that if you reach a certain point when you are doing medical and scientific research into things that affect the human body where you have to be able to test it on a human body yes. in order for that for the process to advance any further. So so like the moral gray area of human experimentation in medicine, it, it really feels like the only thing that separates it from like pure evil is the consent of the person being experimented right. upon. That's the only thing. And they're thing, fully you know, informed consent that they know exactly, exactly yeah. what you're going to do and that they say yes to exactly what you're going to do. And then you only do that thing. Yes. And that, and that they have understood the risks and that they have had the, that they've been given the opportunity freely and fully to say like, okay, I am determining that like the risk to myself I'm undertaking is less important than what I believe could be the benefit to humanity of testing out, you know, this, this new drug or this new medical procedure or this new, you know, whatever. I've been given all the information that I need to make that assessment. And then I have said yes. And I've signed this form, which is absolutely categorically different from the way that like from the, the, you know, the history in America of medical experimentation on African-Americans. Right. Exactly. Which is one of the most like nauseatingly horrific parts of our racial history the you know because it was all done without consent it was all it was done sometimes without their knowledge you know like like the thalidomide babies yeah you know, like there were things where it's like they didn't even know what was happening you know and the mount weather version of this story i think really is that dark and terrible cautionary tale of the people who are so 
invested in the survival of their own people that anyone who is not their own people don't even count as people Mm -hmm. they're just like you you are only valuable for your utility so they keep them in cages they feed them just enough to keep the bodies alive and then they literally dump their corpses in a dumpster when they're done with them you know like they don't even bury the bodies they just go in the garbage bin and so that version of the eugenic story for for the characters who we have to care about and have empathy with for the show to be the show there are lines there that they can't cross and come back from them morally you know like yeah like dante wallace had some redeeming motivations and some redeeming characteristics but you can't walk back from his full and complete knowledge of the things that were happening and him consenting over and over and over again to permit them to happen and then consenting again fully and freely to allowing them to do that to the kids he'd already known that had been living there that he'd been clothing and feeding and talking to and related to that like at the end game when he realized it was either his people or Clark's people he was like yes okay fine kill Harper and Drainer and and we can't and I don't think that they ever would it's like Abby Griffin can't go there both because it would be so wildly out of character that you'd be like what the fuck are they doing and also because for the narrative framework of the show to work we have to sort of feel like um I mean that's a that's a there's 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 no gray at that point yes there's yes it's 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 pure black and white it's like that's evil like what they did was absolutely yeah where the gray exists, I think, is in that question of if the person has the information and they say yes to it, but a terrible thing still happens, was it right or wrong? Yeah. Well, and also maybe like a little bit of, there's a little bit of gray maybe in like how you, how you persuade them. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like I think Raven, you know, Raven pointing a gun at Luna and saying you can't get on that boat versus Raven setting the gun down and being like, help us, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're our only help. <laughs> I think even in that little kind of microcosm moment, we're watching Raven walk through. If if she convinces Luna by literally holding her at gunpoint, she hasn't done the right thing. Yes. So so the way that you you get there is really important. Okay, um, so I gotta go. We never actually talked about the horribles, the Bellamy's like morning scene, which is actually fine oh, with me because Jesus. I have no yeah. like articulate words other than just like I feel like there's a hole ripped open in my chest. It was the worst thing on every level, and the I mean Bob Morley is is oh my god incandescent. Yeah, He's- all the kudos. That was amazing. Like like it was one of those things like Bob. Thank you for re- reaching into my chest and ripping out my heart. You're amazing. Oh my god! I will never recover. <laughs> and and everyone else in that scene too. Oh I mean, god! Like, I know. I know. You know the moment where you realize that Kane thinks Octavia is dead, and the last thing that he said to her was so awful. Yes. Yes. And Roan's really deeply conflicted relationship with the fact that like. He didn't want this to happen, but now this is a factor that he can't escape from. That that if in if nothing else, really severely damages his bargaining position with Clark. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, and echoes echoes like to- just like deep um, conflict and ambivalence and and remorse and and all that. I mean, like it was a it was an amazing scene. Like everybody in it just yeah, for a scene with almost no dialogue, which yeah. is like like the barest minimum. Of dialogue. That lasted like one minute. It was still, yeah, it was like, 
One of the most horrible things I've ever seen on this show. Yes, me too. <laughs> it's just, oh, God, I, yeah. I don't think I can watch, I've watched it twice, I don't know if I can watch it again, it's just like too Yeah, no, it was, it was so bad, it was much. so bad. Too and much. And my And my great fear for next week, you know, like we see in the trailers that like we have, you know, Ron and Echo show up and, and parlay with Clark, with Kane and Bellamy as hostages, and we also presume that at some point in either the next episode or episodes following, we don't know when, Octavia must make it back to Arcadia. So if she makes it back to Arcadia before Clark, like, you know, if, if she and Clark don't cross paths, then how long, like, how long until Bellamy knows his sister's still alive? I think she must make it back next episode because otherwise how would they know to cut off, you know, to head them off at the pass? That's Literally. true. So I think Octavia must, I mean, like, like, we still don't know if Clark and Bellamy, like, Bellamy may still not know by the end of next episode, depending on where he ends up. Like, he might not, they might not have right. had a chance to tell him that she's alive. So, so I think Clark must know. Everybody at Arcade must know. It may end up being in Clark's best negotiating interest. Not to give that away. Not to give that away to Roan yet. Yeah, no, I think that's probably true. So, so she has to keep Bellamy in the dark. And I think it's also, there's that little line of dialogue right before they come in, the scene, you know, before Echo and, and Roan come in. Um, when Bellamy is talking to Kane, he says, you know, no matter what we do, we always end up back here at the brink of war. And so, like, I think, I feel like that's a setup for, like, there's, like, a, you know, Bellamy in despair arc that's going to be yeah. starting that I imagine will last more than just one episode. So, yeah, yeah, I yeah. wouldn't be surprised if Bellamy doesn't find out that uh, Octavia is alive for next, for at least the next episode, which... I think we have a week off after that, so I'm just like, ah! Oh, God, I know. It's like, it's, it's such a long time for us to be, it's like, I just need the Blakes to hug. I, know. I, I I mean, I really want, I want Kane to hug Octavia too, but I just really need, like, I need, I need Bellamy to know that he didn't. Like, I need, you know, Bellamy and Kane think they killed her. I know, her. yeah. Kane thinks that he sent Octavia to her death. The only reason she was out there alone was because he fired her and sent her back to Arcadia. And that's why she was killed. And Bellamy, like his whole motivation has been like protecting his sister, protecting his sister, protecting his sister. And the one moment he feels like she needed him the most, he wasn't there. Like, it's just, it's just, it's so fucking awful. (laughs) It is terrible. Terrible, terrible. And on that note. (laughs) And on that note. (laughs) We bid you adieu. We will be back here next week to watch Bellamy's continued unschooling (laughs) for uh, episode five, which is called... Uh, The Tinderbox. The Tinderbox, yes. Uh, Alrighty. Uh, Okay, that's all for us. We'll see you next week. See you next week. Bye. Bye.